need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Better not come any closer. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Huh? I don't need to be here. I have pudding in the fridge. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapol. And I'm James Laskowski. Very excited for this particular episode because we have a returning guest who is actually in the room, live, All with of us. us. In the room. This is crazy. This is how it's supposed to be. I agree. Yeah. You fled to Michigan and this is no longer how it was, but this is this feels right. I was too scared of success. Yeah, and you were I was, afraid of success. Yeah. You edited in the cruisers did. <laughs> Who is this wonderful person that is sitting in the room with us? He uh, was on our Otto Preminger episode. That's true. As well as David Lynch. That's true. And he's co-hosting a podcast that you can find at Where the Long Tail Ends. That's true. I want to say it's called Still Watching the Skies. You would be correct. Woohoo! It is Nat Almeral. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, hanging with all of you mm-hmm. and Mr. Cooper. Mm-hmm. And good mm-hmm. to see you again, Jim. It is great to be back. And well, it's great Patrick. to be live in the room. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it's been a while since I've seen Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Jim's, been a while. Jim's been AWOL. Jim went to where all of the indie movies are happening now. Jenny, the- and he, then he moved just in time for it to not matter. I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. You went there, and then, and then all the things happened, and then nothing happened with that, and then you left. If it had been my interview with Joel, I'd just been like, hey, did you hang out at the Meanwhile a lot? Oh, you know yeah, that no, bar, uh, that corner bar? Yeah, I like, you know, it's a good bar. I yeah. like there. Okay. Yeah, love that place. Like love it. Impression. Yeah. Um, that was a great interview, Patrick. We Thank did you. a bonus episode. You did a good interview with Riley Stearns. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of the movie. Sorry I forgot to bring it for you, but... Um, That's fine. <laughs> you're going to have to see that one for sure. Yeah, um, I'll rent it. Yeah, bonus episode featuring both of us reviewing indie directors, yep. which went very well. As well... Um, Last week, I was very happy to record with Bill Ackerman mm-hmm. as we talked about Laura Dern and our top five favorite actresses. I mentioned on the show that maybe a couple times a year, if we want to do this, we might just uh, cover an actor or an actress and you know see you know do our own actors club, sure. so to speak. You know, um, since we covered actresses last time, I assume maybe in the summertime you can join us for some actors. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, I think so too. How's your day, Patrick? Oh, it's good. It's good. I got I got drunk at three, and then I sobered up by the time you got here. Oh, so oops! I'm in that I'm in that zone right now. Damn it! Uh, let's see. I watched uh, my favorite John Huston movie, <gasps> which I'm going to Jim style uh, not tell you the name of Tease. until way later. Um, I uh, did some grocery shopping, made mm-hmm. myself some spaghetti and meatballs. What about the pudding? I did make instant pudding. There's instant pudding in the in the fridge right now. I was eating it while uh, when Nat got here, so that had to be put on hold because I made one serving size of pudding, <laughs> and you do not let a guest into your home and then just eat pudding in front of them. It's weird. Um, Two hundred and fifty pounds of pudding. What's that from? The state. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, I do want to uh, do one other quick bit of uh, business. What is it? Before we go into what we watched this week, um, my friend uh, Jess Conger is an actress, um, and she lives in Salem, Massachusetts, and they have a Kickstarter right now for their movie uh, called Most Likely. Um, It's not about witches, is it? No, it's not about witches. It's a... uh, I'm going... Okay, so I don't know. I haven't read the script or anything, but just going off of the um, description on the Kickstarter, I'm going to assume it's something along the lines of the celebration. 
<gasps> it's everyone. It's everyone getting away and going to this wedding, and then uh, things happen at the wedding. And it's but they made a movie before called Blacklight, which was really good, and they're trying to get this kickstarted. So I want everyone who listens to this podcast. Like it's a micro budget movie. Their goal is six thousand three hundred dollars. That's not bad. So literally, if you give them five dollars, it will mean a lot. Um, so I will do that. That would actually be really, really nice of you, because um, I really want to see this movie get made. So uh, me too. Just search most likely Kickstarter on Google. If you donate a lot of money, uh, maybe I'll do like a bonus episode for you or something. Just, just, <laughs> just send me an email with like proof that you donated like fifty bucks or something, and then I'll do a bonus episode on the topic of your choice, as long as it's not like snuff films. It'll just be a monologue of yeah. Patrick rambling. Yeah, I'll, I'll fi- we'll figure out something. But, you know, mm-hmm. I uh, really want this to happen, so... Uh, Kickstart that shit! Yeah, yeah, most likely. Uh, go to Kickstarter. God, Kickstarter's dumb because the URL is hard to speak because there's just, like, a thousand numbers in it. Oh, that's dumb. Uh, but you just search Kickstarter, most likely, and then uh, you'll find it. So, cool. um, go ahead and do that. Why not? And uh, what's been going on with you, Nat? Anything exciting? Uh, I know you're co-hosting the podcast, like I mentioned. And that's going really well, from what I've heard. That is going well. We just finished up, uh, well, actually about a month ago, we finished doing uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind with uh, Mark Hughes from Forbes, and he was a great guest to have on. Uh, We're having a great time. Robert Reinecke, who I believe has been on the show before, talking Mm -hmm. about Terry Fisher. Indeed. Mm -hmm. As well as uh, Henry George Clouseau. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cody Lang. And it's a lot of fun. If you like science fiction movies, whether cheesy, high quality, old, new, uh, please check it out. And we generally have bonus episodes coming up um, every month. So it's generally about two two podcasts a month. That's a good pace. Yeah. I just saw recently Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Uh-huh. It's a very fun movie. Uh-huh. That, that that movie delivers. A lot of those movies they don't deliver. The monster ends up being this like just slow moving rubber suit thing. Uh, that movie they they lay waste to Washington D.C. in uh, the uh, classic style. Um, it's a lot of fun. Now that's the one where the UFO runs into the Washington Monument. Yeah, that's the best part. The best part is <laughs> uh, so they're in, during their like final attack on Washington D.C. They're blowing up all these buildings, but they're very, very nondescript, non you know monument buildings, and. I thought, oh, this movie doesn't have the guts to destroy a national landmark. And then they, the scientists, like heroes, come with the giant magnet, which they're using to like take down the flying saucers. And it's in taking down the flying saucer, they fuck up the Washington Monument. So that wasn't <laughs> actually the work of the aliens. The first major uh, monument that gets destroyed is because uh, they took down a saucer that was too close. And then Will Smith shows up and says, oh, hell no. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, it, it is totally... I mean, they don't have like one giant city destroying laser that hmm. now I guess all move like all big <laughs> like budget like sci-fi uh, blockbuster movies have, but like, um, but it is totally this is the movie that uh, Independence Day took from. So in Earth versus the Flying Saucers, who wins? I, it's a draw. It's kind of like Godzilla versus King Kong. <laughs> in the Japanese version, the Flying Saucers win, and then uh, now Earth. Earth, Earth, uh, you know what? Earth, Earth takes down those flying saucers, but then Earth has to watch the skies. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's one of those. Good retro hmm. segue. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a twist? Eartha Kit saves the world. I'd like to see that. Yeah, maybe, Jim. Jim, the look Jim has on his face right now is like he just realized he shit his pants while giving a, <laughs> giving a speech. 
Yeah. Like, like he's biting his lips, smiling so hard, so wide. Well, clearly you need to see Erna Scared Stupid, because Eartha Kitt does save the world. Oh! I guess I do. Um, no, I, I, I did almost shit my pants today, because, um, and especially if my boss winds up hearing this podcast, he'll, he'll laugh. But um, today was a very special day. I am now the assistant manager of Second Chance Thrift in Lamont, Illinois, and the people that have been running it for about nine years, I want to say, um, they're retiring, and it's a it's kind of a big thing for everybody over there who volunteers, and all the proceeds go to the developmentally disabled. All the profits, every penny that comes in that store goes to help those in need. Um, and if you're looking to expand your VHS collection, please come by, because we have a lot of VHS tapes. Um, and a lot of great stuff in general. Just uh, tons and tons of donations come in all the time. If you happen to live in Illinois, and particularly close to Lamont, come in and see me. It's a good time over there. I'm always having fun. So what's your VHS pick of the week? Hmm. It's speed. Every week it's speed. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I saw maybe Broken Arrow. I think Broken every Arrow. week is either Speed, Broken Arrow, or Titanic. Yes, pretty much, pretty much. I'm just hoping we get some quality Blu-rays, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. But that's no. okay. <laughs> that only happens at my library of all places where they sell like Criterion's for a dollar. That's the, but that's their copies. That's not people donating to the library. Right. That's true. Which is always a good thing when that happens. Patrick. Yeah. I think I'm ready for what. The next segment. What is the next segment, Jim? I don't know. Tell okay, me. I think it's what we watched this week. I think you're right. Guess what? Yo. We need you to go first. Okay. And let us know something cool that you've seen recently. Sure. I got uh, two movies. I'll do one quick, and then I'll uh, I'll get into the second That's one. That's your MO. Well, listening back to the episodes, you do that 
for every what we watch segment. Not that I'm complaining. Because I'm never actually sure how long I should go on talking about what I watched this week. Sure, sure. And so, you know, I figure if I talk at length about one and then do a quick one on one on another one. Actually, can I ask a question? Do you do, when we have a repeat guest on? Do you go back and listen to the previous episodes? Is that like a <laughs> no, habit of yours? That's part or? of the homework. I'm, no, I'm doing for episode 100. I'm getting more clips from our last episode. 100 is not a clip show. I'm getting more clips anyway. Okay. <laughs> so for what? <laughs> for more clips, just um, for our entertainment and a montage. Okay. At the end. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not like going back and listening to our episodes on repeat I, or anything. Maybe you do. You listen um, to so many podcasts. It wouldn't surprise no. me. I fall. I usually fall asleep to podcasts, but not ours. So let's continue on with Nat here and talking about what we watched. Sure. So the first movie, uh, it's a Netflix choice. I rewatched Amadeus, and oddly enough, wow! I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting a weird look from. No, Jimmy. no, I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, I, I, I love feel it like too. it came up recently, didn't it? Or maybe not. Maybe I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, the weird thing is, on Netflix, it's listed as Amadeus, but they actually have the director's cut, so they have some of the additional scenes in there. And I've seen the hmm. director's cut before, and the added scenes really kind of stick out like a sore thumb in this. So one of them is, they actually have the scene where his wife goes to Salieri and tries to seduce him. So you get to see his wife topless. I guess that's kind of the biggest plus of that. But... Um, Outside of that, they have uh, Amadeus trying to give piano lessons to some of the aristocracy, and then they have um, they have like one more short scene with the head of the uh, the more commercial theater, and they really don't add anything to the movie. Um, I think the movie is fine just mm-hmm. the, with the theatrical cut. It does provide some explanation as to why uh, Stanzi Amadeus or Mozart's wife is angry at Salieri at the end of the film, but you don't really need that. Um, outside of that, I I absolutely love this film. I love the look of it. I love the performances. I love the music. Obviously. Who directed this? Milos Foreman. Foreman. Oh, okay. Um, I love how there's like so many other things going on in this movie outside of just the conflict between Mozart and Salieri. Um, just looking at all the different systems of like musical patronage in the 18th century, from like. Um, from like being commissioned by a city official to writing for like a public theater and how they have the like epic movie version of Don Giovanni in that theater where it's basically like a parody of Mozart's opera. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, 1984 best picture winner, it still holds up fantastically well. Uh, F Murray Abraham won an Oscar for it. Looks gorgeous. And, and he would go on to star in last action hero. This is true. Yep. Uh, and this is, yeah. That was so vital. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, doesn't the kid say, you're the guy who killed Mozart in Last Action Hero? <laughs> right. Okay. Well, he also shows up in Hotel, uh, not Rwanda, Budapest. Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, and then Probably the- <laughs> a couple movies in between. If I had probably. to guess, F. Murray Abraham probably made more than three movies no. in the past 30 years. <laughs> he was in Scarface, but yeah. But he just dropped off the face of the earth. He was also good on Louie, I think. Wasn't he on Louie last season? I think he was. Yeah, he was. He's the father. Right. So, F. Murray Abraham, if you're listening, we love you. Come back to us. Well, you already have come back to us, so go fuck yourself. Um, I didn't mean that. But the second one is another Netflix pick, and it's called Scarlet Street. This is a 1945 movie with uh, Edward G. Robinson, some gal, and some dude. 
And it starts out as kind of your basic older man falls in love with a younger girl story. So Edward G. Robinson is the older man. He's a banker who, in his spare time, paints. And one night after a raucous bank orgy party, he sees this woman getting beaten on the street, goes to rescue her, and they strike up a conversation. He kind of falls for her, tells her he's an artist. She tells him she's an actress, but she's really more of like a two-bit criminal. And the man who was beating her is her boyfriend, who's also a very sleazy two-bit criminal. And they had just need basically to get him to embezzle a bunch of money and basically lead him on as for as long as they can. And so, yeah, okay, we've seen this plot like a million times before. But it actually gets really, really interesting past that. So he's married to this woman who's very obnoxious and overbearing and constantly refers to her first husband how much of a a better husband and a better man he was than Edward G. Robinson. So, Mm. you know, he's getting really fed up at home, and he's getting increasingly involved with this woman. She uh, tells him that she needs a new place to stay, and his wife wants to get rid of his paintings. So he comes up with the idea of, okay, we'll rent a place. She can live there. I can store my paintings there. He does that, and then she and her boyfriend decide, well, why don't we just sell his paintings to get extra money? And they start doing that. They don't really get any bites until they just sell them to a street vendor. And then all of a sudden, somebody like a famous art critic recognizes, like sees these paintings, loves them, starts writing about them, and it takes off. And she starts taking credit for painting them. And eventually, Edward G. Robinson finds out, and he's totally cool with it. So hmm. he starts to <clears throat> paint more and more but doing this under the guise of like painting paintings that are like kind of more in tune with like maybe what she would do or what her interests are and paints this uh, quote unquote self portrait of her. That's a huge success. And it's just one of those really interesting turns um, that really kind of make this movie out to be far better than like the first 20 or so minutes would indicate. And then there's another really big twist in that. And then another really big twist and it ends up being a really, really fun, interesting, compelling drama. And when I finished it, I noticed, oh, this is directed by Fritz Lang. So... Ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a director we need to do. Um, but I would mm-hmm. definitely recommend checking it out. It's on American Netflix uh, called Scarlet Street, Edward J. Robinson. And it's a lot of fun. Sounds like the same thing, same thing that happens in like Treasure of Sierra Madre. Where it sets, like, the first 20 minutes, you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen. These guys are going to get together, and then money will corrupt him, and then it's eventually just going to lead to them infighting and sniping and trying to kill each other. But then when you actually watch the movie, it's just constant digression. Like, constantly some other thing happens that was that you cannot <coughs> foresee happening. And, it, and then it, it keeps, like, complicating everything. And then it ends hmm. up being the same thing that you. Yeah, well, I know it, it, it bent awesome back on itself, but the way it gets there is yeah. way different than you'd ever expect. Exactly. Well, that sounds interesting. I'll have to check that out for sure. It sounds a lot like a movie, and yet I can't remember the name of it, so probably shouldn't bring it up. But it's a Robert Mitchum movie from the '40s. Out of the past. Yes, thank you. I saw that fairly recently. Good job, Patrick. Yeah. Um, that's a movie where there's twist upon twist, and then flashback upon flashback. It's like. It, it's it's um, man. There's so much happens in that movie to each character in different ways, and you sort of have to keep up with it um, in terms of like, oh my god, where are we at, and who are we you know focusing on? I mean, it does the camera 
push into the person as they think back to their past and stuff. But it was just like constantly flashing back upon flashback upon flashback. And yeah, a lot of twists. A very interesting, compelling story. Out of the past. Good movie. Who did that one? I forgot. That's fine. Okay. Patrick? What? Are you excited? We got some movies to talk about here. I guess we do. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. Should just leave it at that. <laughs> you know what? Cut to the director. You know what? The the, uh, <laughs> the potential for what the conversations could be right now yeah. is, is limitless. We should stop. We're going to talk about limitless. We're, we should stop. Yeah, right now. We should okay. stop. Stop forever. We should stop this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, both Patrick and I saw a couple of movies Yeah, that, um, I mean, are going to be pretty high on our lists come end of the year. Um, both have turned into possibly all-time favorites for me. Yeah? Yeah. Um, one of them is called It Follows, uh-huh. and the other is called The Duke of Burgundy. These films aren't really related. We're kind of talking about them as a pair. But the only the only thing they have in common is that uh, we still they both we, played at the music they box. both played the music box one week after the other yeah which is a nice feeling sometimes when you you read about like film history and you're like Jesus Gremlins came out and then the next week Indiana Jones or whatever I don't I, those movies probably didn't come out the same year but you know like you you read examples of like movies coming out right after another that are just amazing yeah um, I think that <laughs> happened with Goonies and Back to the Future maybe oh okay yeah. well that's that's one good movie. <laughs> Well, for my childhood, I yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, okay, that that's fair. But like, yeah, so this is an example of uh, well, it's all downhill from here because we just saw yeah. two really amazing movies. Duke, I want to hear what you think of Duke of Burgundy I, before I say anything about it. I'm a few. I'm like a month removed from it right now, but my um, initial reaction was. Similar to yours, from what I gather, in terms of thinking of the servant a little bit, but also finding it to be kind of a sweet romantic movie that's also kind of got some codependence going on in there, but it portrays it in a way that didn't feel too weird or gross or, you know, suffocating in the way I think of codependence. Go ahead and give the basic premise of Duke of Burgundy. Well, it involves uh, two women who live together, correct? Yes. And they have a relationship. Um, it's It starts off with one of them coming to the door thinking that she's a maid or a servant um, for the other. And it, it's, you sort of realize as time goes on that um, they're together and this is sort of a role play that they do. Um, that is one of my favorite things is the way it doles out that information yes. Yes. is really smart. It is. It's, it's not just also like, subtle. It, yeah, it's really subtle, but it's also it's not just like oh, I'm gonna we're, it'll be cryptic. Like the way it gives you information informs how you view the characters exactly in like a really important way to the to right. the extent that you don't know how you feel about the relationship until it's over until it's like had its say. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Um, I was just kind of uh, blown away by the film visually um, I think this director as much as I like Barbarian Sound Studio I think this one is a step up what um, the, uh, I'm going to look up what was the film he did before Barbarian I don't Sound? know I've heard of it 
but I've never He's seen done it. another. Okay. Well, yeah, uh, I'm going to look uh, into Peter that. Strick- Peter Strickland is the name of the writer director. Yes. Uh, British man. Have you seen either of these yet, Nat? Barbarian Sound Studio or Yeah, I I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you think cuz it's th- both of those movies are kind of like the kind afterwards you want to talk with them about okay. with Catalan Varga was the film he made in 2009. Okay. Well, so I'm going to be tracking that, that down. I, I don't know anything about that, yeah, so we should probably find out. Because both Bavarian Sound Studio and Duke of Burgundy are really good. Yeah. Um, sound design, cinematography, oh, yeah. like everything is just beautiful and sublime. It's, it's, a, it's also a movie, though, that I, in general, don't like doing this because I just like to be able to have a conversation, especially about a movie as rich as this. But I think it's really, really rewarding to sort of watch it unencumbered by expectations or knowing too much about what's going to happen next. That's true. Um, Same kind of goes with It Follows. I, I would say less of It Follows. It Follows sets up its premise and then kind of just delivers on its premise. Yeah. Um, you don't have to, you know, you can tell basically how the movie's going to work. It's a pretty, It Follows has a weird tone, but it's a pretty traditional movie um, horror, as far as like horror movies go. Whereas Duke of Burgundy sets up, it has this crazy... I forget the name. It's like this. It's this band that does the music for Duke of Burgundy, and yeah. it's this crazy Euro horror, like Italian kind of music, like the kind of music you would hear open a, a Giallo film or something, which is you know ties back again into Barbarian Sound Studio, which was about uh, Toby Jones playing uh, this sound engineer who's doing uh, foley work on a uh, Giallo film. The band's name is Cat's Eyes. Cat's Eyes, who are... Apparently, they have a reputation outside of this film. Okay. Um, I, 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 I talked about it with someone, and they were like, oh, I love Cat's Eyes. They do the music? <laughs> so oh, wow. Like, okay. okay. Well, cool. So it's, it's a really cool... And it has... And the credits feel like that, too. And you're, like, watching a Mario Bob... Like, Lisa and the Devil is what I thought of during the credit oh. sequence. Like, uh... Just those kind of freeze frame, like degraded freeze frames, you know, the way when they do post-processing, and mm-hmm. then they would do a freeze frame, and then suddenly it would, like, look a little worse, and it would just... Yeah. Like, that's how the opening credits set up, so you think it is going to be more horror-driven or more of a thriller or uh, than it actually is. Because you're very right. It's a very sweet story, and it is a role-playing thing, and there is elements of uh, S&M and... Um, and they're and top and bottom, but it is. I don't think you need any experience in that field to relate to it because ultimately, uh, it's a movie that's not about. So, like, even though it has all these like weird European exploitation influences, it's not a movie about like the salaciousness of which I was kinky sex half expecting yeah me too because it's just he's a white you know it, white doesn't factor into it but he's he's a man making a movie about lesbians so you expect it to be at least a little sort of uh, you know uh, creepy and lurid lurid there we go and, yeah. yeah and leering but it isn't that at all there's no nudity in the film the, there's no real traditional sex scenes um, even the more salacious moments of uh, S&M that they get into the kinkier stuff uh, is all done through sound design and you don't actually see the action happen yeah even the well the masturbation scene when they're in bed together yeah, like, really, yeah no, it's, it's you know what's going on obviously but it's sort of still off screen right I mean but at the same time it is very sensual in yes. that it's all about 
these fabrics and about you know these close ups and the, these textures and it mm-hmm. is it has that sort of uh, kink <laughs> association with just like an obsession with uh, materials um, and stuff like that. But it is not about how sexy and lurid and and fun that is. It's about like how that is all just these trappings of how these characters relate to each other. And ultimately, like whether you want someone to anticipate your needs as far as like you know how they should dominate you or how you. Or how you want someone to anticipate your needs as far as, like, I just wish I didn't have to tell you to do the dishes. You know, like, yeah. like it's really Something relatable like in that. that way, the way that relationships are where you just, like, you get on your each other's nerves because you're different people. And then you just have to say, like, and eventually you have to have the conversation that's just like, all right, this is actually what I need from you. This is actually what needs to happen. And then, you know, sometimes you don't have the conversation and then you go on too long and you start resenting like, just being put in this situation where it's like, all right, well, I guess it's, I've just been picking up your dirty clothes, so I guess now I'm the dirty, like, and you start resenting it or yeah. whatever it is, you know, like, um, that sort of thing is what the movie's actually about. Um, it just uses this sort of role-playing thing as a good way of expressing uh, sort of the um, ambiguity of who of who's in charge in a relationship and stuff. There's also some other crazy surreal stuff in it. Ugh. It isn't <laughs> like, despite being kind of—is it butterflies? No, no, it is not butterflies. It's moths. Moths. Okay. Uh, there's there. Yeah, there's a weird obsession with insects mm-hmm. in it. There is something I didn't even notice that Regina pointed out to me, and I don't want to say because I think probably figuring discovering this on your own would be mind blowing. So I'm gonna. Just, I, I'll ask you off the air, Jim. Okay. Uh, if you notice this thing, because I did not notice it, and the Regina later was like, "Did you notice that in that scene, blank?" And I was like, "What? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard." So anyway, but it's amazing. Um, without giving anything away, the question I was left wondering: How do you feel about the ending? Is it happy or sad? Um, there are two or is people... it just really ambiguous, sort of in the middle there? And... Well, yeah. I mean, it's not happy or sad in the traditional Hollywood. Yeah. It's not comedy or tragedy, but it is. I would say positive in that it is depicts... it positive for one person and kind of not so no, much for I the other. I think ultimately those two people they come to an understanding, care about each other, and how how far caring about each other and loving each other and wanting to do the right thing, but still fulfill their own desires and needs. Like ultimately, where, how far the fact that they care about each other is going to take them is ambiguous. But that's all relationships. Yeah, I think at the end of the movie. Personally, I feel like the relationship is not a toxic one, and that's what I was feeling too. But it seemed like they were regressing. But I also thought that's what—that's how they connect too. So, yeah, yeah, is that a bad thing? No, it's that, a, it's, a, yeah, it's also funny that it's a movie about that uses like role playing and S and M as a metaphor for power dynamics in a relationship that yeah. is not, but doesn't have the traditional view. Uh, which is like whoever's dominating, they're the person in charge, and whoever's submissive, they're the person who's in who's being controlled. Like it, it doesn't that have switches. that sort of fallacy that a lot of traditional things about S and M are, which is like the person in control is the person who takes control in the scene, which is just like no, the person in control is probably just the person who sets it up, yes. you know, <laughs> what, yes. and whatever they're and like so. Despite the fact that yeah, they seem to be regressing, it it is very 
not passing any kind of judgment on the way their relationship expresses itself. It's not mm. like a reactionist, reactionary sort of, you know, like, this goes too far. You know, they're role-playing. They don't know who they are anymore. Like, it, it doesn't, I don't think it takes that tact at all. That was, that was the other really cool thing about it, is that it's very sex-positive for a movie that is about how these two people are attacking each other using sex. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very empathic movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which surprised me, too. Barbarian Sound Studio is a more surreal film. It's yeah. more structured like a thriller. It's more about building dread and tension. And I was expecting a similar it's thing. It's more of a this. mood piece, I think. Yeah, and yeah. It's... And it has... I mean, this has, a, this has an ending that is a little out there, but like that... But Barbarian Sound Studio has an ending that's completely off the rails and like... In a great way. I mean, I love it. But So I was kind of expecting the same thing, and it was so great to be surprised. Yes. It's so good to walk into a movie thinking you know what to expect uh, based on the director's previous work. And it right. turns out, no, the director's actually not just constantly doing a riff on one thing. Maybe this director's like John Huston, who's just a good storyteller, and you mm-hmm. give him material... And whether the material is Fat City or the material is uh, is Maltese Falcon, he's going to tell that story well. Um, and I think probably Peter Strickland is that guy. It seems like it. Um, I'm... But on the other hand, uh, It Follows. You didn't see It Follows. Do you have any, by the way, if you have any questions about these movies. <laughs> I, I, I actually know. I do know about Duke of Burgundy, and I've, I've been meaning to check it out. It's just, I've been way too busy at the beginning sure. of this year, so I've not really had that much of a chance, but... The workload has somewhat lightened up, so yes, I definitely... Duke of Burgundy was top of my list, and then It Follows yeah. I haven't heard too much about. So, so yeah, It Follows is a high-concept horror movie in the way almost that like A Nightmare on Elm Street is a high-concept horror movie, which is just... The premise is, it's like a sexually transmitted disease, but it's a curse. And if you have this curse, then there is some evil presence, and it's not really sure if this is a ghost or a demon or what, but this evil presence will come to you and kill you. And this evil presence is like the Terminator, except this evil presence just walks very slowly. Uh-huh. So, like, the Terminator, there's this urgency, because he had to kill Sarah Connor before, you know, John Connor was born or whatever. But, like, but in this, this is a creature or a demon or whatever that will just keep coming for you. So, say you... And take get, different forms. Yeah, so, like, say you have sex with someone who has this curse... Then suddenly you have the curse, and the thing is not going to go after them until it kills you. So the idea is just, if you want it to be safe, you keep passing it along. You keep passing the buck. And it's you know, it's just like a good horror premise because it ends up playing a lot of the games that something like Halloween does, where you're constantly seeing Michael Myers in the background and the foreground, and then the moment he's not there, the camera is very wisely like gliding around, so you're constantly on the lookout. Oh, this, this movie plays that game a lot. Okay, the so, rotating camera moment. Yeah, yeah. There's so genius. many. There's a couple of moments with like 720 rotations of cameras and stuff that are just about te- like, you know, goosing the audience into making them look for someone walking towards the main character. So okay, so the curse is transmitted through sex. Yes. What happens if you have a three way? Yeah. See, this is so. <laughs> it's turning you know, into like Gremlins, gremlins question. Falls is very good, but it's more of a mood piece. And like most films that I find very interesting and singular. I want to see the Dream Warriors or the Final Destination 2 kind of a sequel that just, <laughs> like, okay, let's, let's forget trying to make this, like, a somber, weird, like, dreamy, surreal mood to it. Let's just take the premise, explode it in a million directions, and see what happens. So, Which could happen. Yeah. Yeah, if I could see it, it follows having a sequel. Especially given the premise, you could just have, like, 
you don't even have to have any of the characters from the first film. You just have to have a character that has been passed, you know? And another sort of interesting backstory to this film involves its release because, like, the studios were really perplexed. Um, they couldn't decide whether to just release it on VOD. Mm-hmm. And, like, literally days before it opened, they said, we're not going to release it on VOD, and we're going to give it a wide release. Is it the Weinsteins that had something to do with this, I think? Uh, yeah, Maybe? TWC. Oh, okay. Yeah, Weinstein Company. Company. Yeah, okay. So they were just... They didn't it's, know what to do with this movie. So he, the thing with this movie is, it's in this weird in-between space. So yeah, like, if exactly. If you have a movie like Barbarian Sound Studio, you're just like, all right, it's going to open in 12 cities, and the art in the art film centers in those cities. So that's what you're going to do with a movie like that. It Follows is really just a strong premise for a traditional kind of a horror, like, horror movie, but at the same time, it has this weird tone that Myth of the American Sleepover, have you seen that? Myth I have not. Okay, so David Robert Mitchell's films feel very languid. Um, the character, like, everything feels slightly off. There's, um, I was actually having a conversation with Sean Pierce today um, on Facebook about It Follows. And Sean Pierce is not a fan because there's a lot of logical gaps in the movie. There's like, and there are like things that just kind of don't make sense. I'm sure there are. <laughs> I just, I tuned them out probably, but, but the one thing I couldn't figure out, and I wonder if you brought this up with Sean. Yeah. The time period. Like, when well, does this movie so, take place? And then, because she has the makeup kit with, yeah. like, that looks like an iPad kind of a okay, scrolling so, thing. Yeah, so, the, one of the, so this movie has this, it's languid, and the characters are sort of dreamy, and they kind of, it's not super naturalistic, they're kind of just talk slower, and they react to things slower. Like, everything just feels a little slowed down, and it makes it kind of dreamy. And then, what adds to that is the fact that everything about the time period, there's no cell phones in the movie, everything about the time period... Like, at some point, she has to pick up the phone and call someone to warn them, and the phone she it's picks a landline. up is a landline, and it's, like, it's got the cord, and it's the old beige phone that you just, that's the beige phone that is everywhere. So she picks up basically the exact same phone that Heather Langenkamp picks up in Nightmare on Elm Street when she's seeing across the street, you know, <laughs> like, into Johnny Depp's room, like, yeah. except the tongue doesn't come out. But, but and a lot of the cars are older, too. And the cars are older, but then there's this one character who has this Kindle... That is, yeah, Kindle. It's, it's basically a Kindle because she's reading The Idiot by Dostoevsky on it, Dostoevsky, and but it's shaped like a like a pink Makeup? plastic clamshell. Yeah, I guess so. That's what I thought. I thought it was just like a clamshell. So like again, it's like it, it kind of ex- it kind of has this ambiguous time setting. It's kind of atemporal in that way. Yeah. There's no parents in the movie. There's basically no adult characters at all. I thought she had a... Her mom was Yeah, no, but they're in one scene. But they're Hmm. constant scenes where they're running all over the place. Yeah. Where they never are like, what are we going to tell our moms? Like, it's just sort of a world where moms aren't a factor. (laughs) Like, where parents aren't a factor. I think there's a dad at the very beginning, too. Yeah, like, there's... But it's very little. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's... And, I mean, Myth of the American Sleepover is that same way. And it's this sort of, like... It's got a weird tone to it that if you're just going into it expecting the conjuring or paranormal activity or something, you're going to be like so bored. I mean, you said you, when you oh walked out of the theater. Oh my God, people hated this movie. <laughs> like the things they were like that. I'm never going to get those two hours back. That's ah, so not like, a two hour movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like people were just like, like they'd seen Freddy got fingered or something. Like they thought it was a big joke. Because, yeah, because it doesn't. I mean, I just couldn't understand that reaction because I loved it so much. I think it's so well made. It's so well directed. The color is beautiful. 
Mm-hmm. Like, it's so nice to see a digitally shot movie that, like, where it just looks like it would look like in the 80s shot on film. Where just, like, the color of the grass and the color of the sky and the color of the pool. Like, everything just looks like it was shot on film. Yeah. And mostly, most horror movies tend to go for the desaturated look. Um, the score. Oh, God, the score. The score, everybody. This is one of my top five favorite I mean, scores at, now, I mean, ever, at this, at this ever. Point, at this point... The, <laughs> at this point in this like I mean how long it's been like six years since Drive came out or something or like four years just these synth heavy scores are yeah like jam. these synth heavy it's not like super surprising that this movie has this score I mean the guest has the same st- sort of score and you know this one's more pulsating yeah yeah this this one's more of an assault the sound design in general there are lots of scenes I mean the whole thing is about building tension because the whole thing is about this. it's not going to pop up it's not a ghost or something that you're going to turn a corner and it's going to be like, ah! It's a thing that you're going to see coming from the horizon. You just can't stop. And, like, some of the ways they get away from it is just, like, they drive, like, you know, a hundred miles in one direction to someone's, like, beach house or whatever. And then it comes there and they get a near escape. By the time they drive back, it's going to take it a couple days to walk back. But, so, like, there's this constant <laughs> feeling of dread and paranoia. Um, yeah. It's really, really well made. It's really scary. I was, it was very scary. I, it builds tension so well. I've been waiting to be scared. Yeah! Yes! Again, this is the yes! movie that fucking scared the shit out of me. Yes, it was so... I mean, okay, <laughs> to be fair, I talked to like three people did not scare them. I know. So it's not going to be for everyone. Clearly. But, oh my god, like, there are so many movies now that are kind of horror movies. They're kind of like... They're horror adjacent. Psychological horror movies. Well, yeah, or yeah. they're just like, they're, horror is the playground in which they do something completely different. Like, Strange Color Your Body's Tears isn't trying to scare you. <laughs> you know? Like, Bavarian Sound Studio is not necessarily, like, trying to scare you. May. Uh, May, well, that May's different. May's like a character study. Yeah, it's more. And it's also, point. like, a movie from 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I put that one in high regard, period. Well, no, so. I'm just saying, like, there's a lot of recent, the recent trend are yeah, these, yeah. like, very fancy, cool, um, sort of Euro-inspired mo- movies that are inspired by horror, but they do something different. Like, even Duke of Burgundy, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Like, you can tell the, the Italian horror influence on Duke of Burgundy, but it's not a horror movie. Right. So. This seemed. This is just, like, a fucking good horror I am, movie. I am ready to say on record, and Patrick's going to be so happy. I just want to say fuck House of the Devil after seeing this movie. Oh, yeah? Because this is the type of movie I grew up with. Yeah, this you is thought House of the Devil is the movie you grew up with. Yes, this is like Cronenberg, Carpenter, Wes Craven, everything. Like so I was beside like, actual, myself. Like this actually is a great demonstration. Like oh no, yes. that's an actual slow burn. Yes, like this yes. is an actual way of building dread. Oh, <laughs> if we flipped, that would be the Duke of Burgundy of this podcast. Oh God, we uh, the way the Michael Mann episode ends <laughs> would be the way our next uh, next episode we're on together ends. Except it's you screaming at me about liking House of the Devil. So, um, and it follows is actually opening even wider tomorrow. Oh, good! Like all over the suburbs. Okay, so by the time people hear this, it's open wide. For the love of God, go see this in the theater. Yeah, even oh, if, yeah, every, yeah, that's even a, if everybody around you hates it, it's a beautiful movie. Yeah, it's a really gorgeous movie. I can't promise that it's going to work for you the way it worked for me. I'm so into what David Robert Mitchell does. With me too. Characters. Me too. He kind of depicts adolescence as like these people. Like, there's so many scenes in this movie which are just the kids sitting around, and it's just it. That to me, yeah. what I remember about adolescence is just like it's like all right, I got picked up. 
all right, where are we going? We're going to your friend's house. Sweet. What are we doing? We're sitting on the couch there. Like, yeah, that's like, pretty much it. He depicts adolescence as like these people who have no forward momentum. So there's this like feedback loop of sexual tension and anxiety that occurs between them. I like that's what uh, that's basically what how myth of American Sleepover proceeds, and that's how this proceeds. Yeah, and I'm so into what he does that when it was when he put that feeling into a really well made horror movie. He's like the antithesis of Kevin Williamson, where all I, the kids are like really witty and talky, and yeah, you know. They, I mean, I'd love that too. I'd I do love too. The Kevin no, Williamson. I don't mind that. It follows sequel. I mean, maybe not Kevin Williamson now, but the Kevin Williamson <laughs> at his peak sequel of it follows. Where, you know, like I said, like where it just takes the premise to the nth degree. Like, that'd be fun, too. There but, could be a Final Destination 2 version of this premise, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Because this, be this movie is not necessarily concerned with, like, getting every narrative twist possible out of... Um, it's not like an endlessly inventive movie. It's more just this exercise in building dread. And there is, there is like, some. it has something to say about sort of the male gaze and about sort of... Being a woman, you know, with burgeoning sexuality and, like, trying to learn how to use that and how to navigate the world now that that is – now it's like, well, you're 19, so now men are just free to to leer at you on the street. Like, like there is this constant feeling – like, that – that feeling of dread that this thing could be walking towards me at any moment – or is currently walking towards me, but I could see it coming at any moment. Like, that does dovetail nicely into – those things but to me those things are subtext they're not they don't the movie isn't like it's not like the the curse in it follows to me at least it's not like it is a stand-in for this issue right yeah it could be an interesting movie that people might people might write papers about later on oh no no no, no. I, yeah the people are definitely gonna write papers about this movie <laughs> <laughs> it's a feminist horror film yeah <laughs> people are gonna write oh, papers god, about yes. it oh god yes did i say i don't know if i said this i said this when i saw myth of the american sleepover and i want to be on record saying this now i think david robert mitchell should adapt black hole by charles burns <laughs> Have you, have you read that graphic you, novel? Again, you're turning into Nostradamus. If this happens in a couple of years... It has to. Have you... Have you so have you read gra- uh, Black, Black Hole, either of you? I don't think so. Okay. I feel like I've seen the book that somebody showed it to me. It's really good. So it. Black Hole is basically the same vibe of Myth the American Sleepover, and it mm. follows. And it is about a sexually transmitted disease going through a high school that like mutates people. And a lot of these mutants... That's very like, Cronenberg. Living out... Yeah, it's very Cronenbergian... Um, and a lot of these mutants like end up living in this sort of makeshift community in the woods, um, and mm. it just goes really, really crazy, weird places. And it is the exact same feeling I got reading that is the exact same feeling I had watching *Myth the American Sleepover*. Yeah, I still have to find the episode where you talked about. It. I think this director should do a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, I said that. I said <laughs> yeah. that. And not only that, like I wanted him to do a horror movie about an STD going through a bunch of high school students. Wait a minute, you said it, you were that specific? Well, black hole. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and then he did this. It's like, oh, fuck, awesome. I mean, I don't... I, don't I think, think you should just have a podcast now where you make movie predictions. Oh, that'd be people. terrible. I, <laughs> but I, I don't think David Robert Mitchell now is going to become, like, a horror guy. But... Mm, I, the thing is, is, like, now that it's opening wide and if it somehow becomes, like, a, you know, um, a movie that... A big... Yeah, sleeper hit. Thank you. I wonder what his career would become like maybe this would be his path like not necessarily like he would like, do it, it follows too but being his seven maybe i don't know 
I hope he does something different, but in the same universe because he's so good with teenagers. It's kind of yeah, it's true. Crazy. Both of his, both of his films, like he has a, he did a short like several years before he made A Myth of the American Sleepover. But basically, his two films that he's made both have almost no adult actors in them, um, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's gonna it's gonna be cool to see what he does next. Absolutely, I loved It Follows, uh, and it's crazy. Like just these two directors. Peter Strickland and David Robert Mitchell, who both made movies that were like, I cannot wait to see what they do next, is, was the feeling I had after Barbarian Sound Studio and Myth of the American Sleepover. Mm-hmm. And boy, have they stepped it yeah. up. They have really stepped it up. Was, like, after Myth of the Americans, after I saw that, I contacted him on Twitter, and I was like, I want to interview you on my podcast. He goes, I'm kind of busy on this other thing I'm working on right now. And I was like, oh, I got blown off. And now I saw it, it follows. I'm like, all right, David Robert Mitchell, fair enough. <laughs> Well, we we have we have an episode where we interview a couple indie filmmakers now, so maybe maybe we could try again. Yeah, we'll try again. Why not? We'd love to talk to you, David, if you're listening. Yeah. So yeah, um, it's all downhill. It's all down. This year's going to be yeah. terrible now. Mm-hmm. What, what what's coming out this year, Matt? Well, it follows. It's coming out in wide release now, tomorrow. Thank God. Oh, I've, I've heard good things about that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a new Fast and Furious. Is that out already? I think that comes out this weekend, too. I heard it's great. Everyone everyone says those movies are great. They're really, not great. I, yeah, I really do not understand the love for those movies. They're, they're I've stupid. seen the first one. I never bothered with any of the others. It's worth seeing Fast Five, just because okay. like there's crazy car stunts that are... Pra- like I think, really, it is... People have been so... Uh, they have spent so much time... <laughs> having practical stunt work taken away from them that like they get something like Fast Five or Fast and the Furious Six and they like go fucking ape shit because oh my god these this isn't CGI this must be the greatest thing ever um, there are some really cool moments in those movies but they're also just like two and a half hours long of nonsense oh. of just total nonsense two and a half hours yeah it, they're not quite as those long movies, as like those the, action they should not be that yeah, long they're, they're not quite as long as like the Michael Bay Transformers movies but it is the similar <laughs> like ratio of just like oh there's a cool moment every once in a while but there is so much bullshit to wade through like they're very earnest too like they're very earnest about their characters and like you know we're family now right bro we're family <laughs> like, right bro yeah I don't know. Those movies, not not for me, man. It's turning into like one of those things where it's like when you watch a TV show and you watch like five episodes or so, and you don't even necessarily like it, but you're like, eh, I kind of want to see where these characters end up. And it's like the Fast and the Furious <laughs> franchises ended up for like taking that direction where there are so many damn movies now with these characters that even if you don't like them, you're just curious to see like if they're going to die, which they won't, or which ones are going to get married, or what's the next thing going to be. But it's just. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, what what actors are going to get added? Yeah, it's, it they it, it basically <laughs> organically created the Expendables. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, it's very much like the Expendables. I'm like, oh, Kurt Russell's in this one. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, Kurt Russell's going to be in a Fast and Furious movie, and he's going to like look at the camera one moment. It's like, oh, it's Stuntman Mike. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it's a different. I would that, actually that, watch that then. That, that actually good. that actually would be too too much wit for a Fast yeah. and Furious movie. It would be more like Ludacris would say something to Tyrese that's dumb, and then Kurt Russell would look at them both like, you guys. <laughs> that is that is how those movies uh, Well, it's operate. a different director, too, than the majority of the films, so I don't know. I like James Wan. I don't love him, but, I mean, Conjuring's good. I kind of like Death Sentence. Mm-hmm. What I else like is Insidious? There? Yeah. You didn't like the ending of Insidious, but I think no. you liked the rest of it. Right. Yeah, I did. So, I don't know. I, I, we'll see. Dead Silence? Ugh. 
Yuck. Have you seen Dead Silence? No. I want to see that movie. Yeah, I bet you do. Ventriloquist dummies are creepy. <laughs> they sure are. I'll watch a Ventriloquist dummy movie. Fuck it. Okay. Shout out to Ventriloquist dummy movies. They're Bonus near, episode near and Ventriloquist <laughs> dummy movies. Yeah. Let's get some magic up in this piece. Mm-hmm. Let's get... What are the other killer Ventriloquist dummy movies? There's magic with Anthony Hopkins. There's all the Goosebumps ones. Night of Living Dummy. Is there one in Trilogy yeah. of Terror? No, that's not. That's a that's, that's a an African doll. Oh. doll. Yeah, it's not hmm. a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, there's that one story in the Ten. It's <laughs> 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 kind of a horror movie. A little bit in parts. Um, I think there's a I think there's a Twilight Zone episode. All right, maybe okay. this is a, maybe this subgenre maybe, is drier than I thought. Maybe they'll have like a uh, for the next Batman movie, the ventriloquist would be the villain. Oh, that'd be great. No, they're not going to do that. How are you going to have a Batman movie that also has Superman where the villain is the ventriloquist? <laughs> I don't know, but I would definitely watch the shit out of that if that happened. The villain is Jeff Dunham. Yeah, the vil- Jeff Dunham as the ventriloquist. Oh. oh. Yeah. Um, or they just give Did Jesse Eisenberg more creatine. Or they give more Ovaltine. So, let's um, move on to the director of the episode, Patrick. Aren't we going to say what it is together? Why not? Why are you quiet now? I'm scared. I can't do the podcast by myself. Help! You you, you earned this. <laughs> Why? I'm giving you the silent treatment for your oval team joke. <laughs> I, I, th- th- this would be the worst podcast ever if you did the silent treatment for every bad joke. That is something. That's next next episode that we do together, Jim. What's going to happen is at some point during the podcast, I'm going to stop. Ta- I'm going to make a decision to stop talking, and I'm going to see how long it takes for you to notice. No. Well, wasn't there an episode where you went up to you went to the bathroom while I was talking? Oh well, I mean that. Yeah, I had to use the restroom. Oh, okay. John Houston. Now I've seen a walk with love and death African queen and the misfits They're all movies From Maltese Falcon to the dead There is only one man Who directed all these And every movie's like Bogart Intrigue Pistol pointed at you Bandit's treasure On a new adventure They don't care What they have to do to get rich But then he also did Annie Moby Dick Freud the Unforgiven Victory Phobia And the Roots of Heaven He don't care He did it all in his career And his name is John Huston To Walter Houston, he was a son. You could call him a ruler. Better Call Saul. Oh. So, speaking of Better Call Saul. Speaking of Better Call Saul. John Houston. Tell me about John Houston, Jim. This might be a first for us in which we have to turn to the guest and say, Guest, 
This might be a first <laughs> for us in that we did no research and don't know what we're talking about. But we've seen some of his movies. John Huston has more acting credits than he has directing credits. Was he an actor first or afterwards? He was actually... Uh, he was actually a screenwriter before all of those. Mm-hmm. I get um, that sense. But he was born, I think, 1906, I believe, in California. His father was Walter Houston, uh, the actor, and we'll right. get to him in a moment. Um, but he, he's he been like a... He was a boxer beforehand. Um, he was a huh. painter his entire life. Uh, but he really got involved in writing uh, when he was, I think, in his mid-early 20s. He wrote uh, two stories and submitted them to the American Mercury... Uh, which was you know a big literary magazine headed by H. L. Mencken. If you've ever seen Inherit the Wind, you know the character Gene Kelly plays. Oh yeah, yeah, that's H. L. Mencken. And Mencken picked him up. Um, Houston was very encouraged by this. He started writing screenplays, and eventually he uh, sold a screenplay. I believe this is how the story goes. He sold a screenplay, and in the contract, it stipulated that he would have an option to direct. And so. He chose, as his first feature, a movie that had been directed twice before, but had ultimately both times failed at the box office, uh, The Maltese Falcon. <gasps> Shock. <laughs> Thank you for your gasp, Jim. <laughs> that was the I, um, twist all along. I think it's interesting because I could be completely off with this, but he's a director that's not necessarily showy or has a distinctive style that I can easily identify, but... I read somewhere, too, that he values the writer over the director. And that's kind of why, also, he's adapted so many books. I got that vibe from watching his movies. Yeah. That they're... I mean, if if he chose for... I mean, not that you can always pick what your first debut feature is going to be in your career, but, like, his first feature was The Maltese Falcon, which is all writers. All Mm -hmm, writing. Like, mm -hmm. it's all dialogue. That movie is so much dialogue. That movie is so much exposition. It is beautiful looking and it's really well acted but like yeah that's a writer's movie yeah and I don't think that's a bad thing at all and no you know. and he's also one of the few directors of that time who wrote most of his own material because most directors even directors you know even like star directors like Hitchcock or whatever they rarely worked on their own screenplays as much as John Huston did um which makes it further interesting that it's I mean, the other problem with it is there's a lot of films he made in the 40s and 50s that I was I couldn't find. Like, so I have, like Beat the Devil was hard for me to yeah, to find a, a decent copy. Find of a good copy of it. Yeah, the public domain. It's in public domain, so it just looks like shit. But <laughs> I wanted to see like a bunch of his other sort of adventure action movies with Bogart. He did like across the Pacific and stuff, and I couldn't get to him. So maybe I, I also like he spend generations in a way that very few directors of his era did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he um, obviously, Maltese Falcons is 1941. His last film was 1987, the year he died, which was The Dead. Um, hmm. Adaptation of James Joyce. Um, well, one of the stories in Dubliners, but the longest story in uh, James Joyce's Dubliners. But yeah, very long career, an extremely long filmography. Um, and yeah, he also is generally very heavily involved in the screenplays too. Um, but there are also like a lot of other writers who that he would collaborate with. Like, Beat the Devil, Truman Capote was one of his collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. Night of the Iguana, Tennessee Williams. Yes. Um, I don't know if Tennessee Williams was directly involved in writing the screenplay of that, though. Oh, it's just based off of Tennessee the Williams. Play. Yeah. Um, and then Arthur Miller for The Misfits. Um, and I don't think he got in contact with, like, Dashiell Hammett. But he, I mean, he had, like, some of his, uh, some of his kind of go-to people for screenwriting. Um, but... 
yeah, definitely very involved with it. And that's kind of the impression I get too. Like there's, and he himself said that he didn't really think of him having a distinct style either in the material he chose or in cinematography or just the general look hmm. of his films. And you look at something like, uh, I guess even the Maltese Falcon as compared to Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Like there's a lot more camera motion in Maltese Falcon, whereas Treasure of the Sierra Madre, it's much more static mm-hmm. and um, just kind of focused on. But I think he makes good choices generally. It's not that yeah. he didn't care yeah. about that sort of thing. No, I'm not saying. Um, he didn't or that his care. movies look shabby because, uh, you know, like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, it opens with a lot of like location shooting and stuff that really, like the whole opening of that movie in the way Bogey is shot and the way that the environments are shot is just about like establishing this super grimy feeling and tone. Just like he's really, this is the most low down. I mean, Bogart is often a a drunk who's hard, you know, hard on his luck. But like, this is the most low down we've ever seen him. Reminded um, me of the opening of Wages of Fear a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Wages of Fear is totally taken. Treasure Sierra Madre. Wages of Fear came afterwards, right? Yeah. Ah. Oh. Sierra Madre is forty eight, and I think Wages of Fear is like fifty three. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's it's definitely the same yeah, setup for sure. Um. Yeah, it's hard to talk about John Huston because it's like, oh, how do you eat a whale? It's like one bite at a time. Like, do, do we start on Maltese Falcon? Do we talk about that? or And how that's like, sort of was one of the most influential noir films ever uh-huh. made? Or do you talk about Fat City and you talk about, like, how he sort of seamlessly integrated himself into New Hollywood while... I mean, Fat City doesn't That felt like me. a very personal movie. Fat, Fat City is not a movie that, like, takes a lot, say, from, like, French New Wave or anything, the way that... You know, you might look at uh, uh, Last Picture Show and see like a lot of Truffaut or something, oh, but yeah. like, yeah. but like, so, but Fat City definitely feels like if if you told me instead of John Huston that Peter Bogdanovich or one of those filmmaker or like uh, who directed Five Easy Pieces, uh, Bob, Bob Raffleson, Raffleson, yeah, you, know, you told yeah. me he directed it, I believe it, um, or even something like The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. I don't know what that one is. Is that um, Paul Newman? Yeah, Paul Newman, and it's just kind of like a series of, of vignettes, but also in the kind of neo-West um, of the 1970s style with a script written by John Milius, which Milius later disowned because he didn't like Houston's choices. But yeah, it's hmm. there's there really isn't like a style to talk about. It's kind of like more focusing, I think, on the characters, and like you said earlier, on the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he's really interested in, is like just really looking at what makes a lot of the people that he's filming or a lot of these characters tick. Um, particularly in the Maltese Falcon, like, you could write an entire paper on who is the good and the bad guy in the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> Mal- I, I've seen Maltese Falcon a couple times before. This time I'm watching it, I could not stop focusing on that henchman. Um, oh, Elijah Cook Jr.? Yeah, Elijah Cook oh, Jr.'s yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walter, is it? Or? Um, no, it's a weird name. Wilmer. Wilmer. There Wilmer, you go. Wilmer. Yes. The character of Wilmer in that movie... Poor bastard. ...is mm-hmm. so funny. Like, he's not funny, but, like, it, that entire movie is just, like... Shitting on him. <laughs> it's yeah. just shitting on him at every possible moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was watching, I was just like imagining in my head like a Rosen, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yeah. are dead version of that movie that just focuses on the worst henchman of all time yeah. <laughs> and this horrible, horrible week he's having. Um, well, that, and, 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 it, and you need that because the other thing that movie is constantly doing is just asserting that Humphrey Bogart is the coolest motherfucker 
in any uh-huh. situation ever. Is that, is that the movie also where the MacGuffin originated? No. Or did it come no, right no, out? You can, yeah, you can go to the Hitchcock 39 Steps. Oh, MacGuffin, okay. You know, yeah. like, I'm I feel pretty like sure... Well, MacGuffin, I don't know if there's actually a movie where the term originated. I think yeah. Hitchcock said it was something like people in a train, some, somebody's looking at a briefcase, and he says, oh, what's in there? And he says, it's a MacGuffin. What's a MacGuffin? It's a device for capturing tigers in the Scottish Highlands. And he says, there are no <laughs> tigers in the Scottish Highlands. Well, then that's no MacGuffin. And that's basically like <laughs> Hitchcock yeah. saying. But it's the same as when you do... It's The, the point of the term MacGuffin is that it's unimportant. Yeah. It's the same way that when yes. you're talking about okay. like business models, you use widgets. Because mm-hmm. it's yeah. unimportant what the actual thing the business is producing is. You're talking about business theory and everything. It's mm-hmm. unimportant what the object actually is or what it does. It's just something that is desired. But it's also right. a great name for yeah. a MacGuffin. Hitchcock, yeah. mm-hmm. pretty good guy. <laughs> yeah. Pretty smart. Well, I meant Maltese Falcon, but MacGuffin is Oh, yeah, too. Maltese Falcon, yeah. Yeah. I like I like it opens with that. Oh man! Speaking of bad, o- not this. Not that it's a bad opening, but it opens with like a little history of the Maltese Falcon that later gets repeated anyway. Yeah, I don't know why it has that opening text crawl, but the I could not watch the Red Badge of Courage. I got that. I put it on. Have you seen the Red Badge of Courage? Yeah, it's that's one that I think was hacked up pretty much. In oh, yeah. Across the Pacific is kind of the same way too. The third act was oh, really? completely redirected because Houston went off to shoot his war documentaries but it's still that one is actually still pretty so Red Badge of Courage opens with the book the leather bound Red Badge of Courage opening, which is yeah. sometimes it happened in those <laughs> days when they were like adapting a it's novel. like the Walt Disney live action yeah, the, oh, okay. yeah Walt Disney sort of a thing but then like a hand and slowly cut and then and then a voice tells you the history of the author of the Red Badge of Courage and then mm-hmm. flips a page it's like then the Red Badge of Courage was really well received flips another yeah. page like some <laughs> people say it's one of the greatest novels of all time flips another page and then it's like and then and then slowly it fades into the actual movie and then it says the voiceovers you're hearing are going to be passages taken directly from Red Badge Cur- it's what? like is this an educational film is this like yeah, it felt like weird. a PBS special more than it felt like a movie and then every line of dialogue is just like are you a coward I'm not a coward I love the fight you love the fight I love the fight I, I, I love the fight I might be a coward like it's <laughs> it's one of the worst um, maybe it gets better later on, but the first, that is the worst opening, so I didn't get to see that. Um, Jim, you liked his... You saw a war documentary. Oh my god, Let There Be so Light is we're gonna just... Be, I guess we're just going to be oh. jumping all over the place well, in that's, order that's to well, kind of been get our as much routine material really. John Houston's as we can. And if we touch on something that we want to do a yeah. digression on, that's fine. <laughs> oh yeah, that's kind of how it is now. We've gone away from the whole... Focus on two. And yeah, all, yeah, but also, know. but also, like we barely said anything about the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> well, I, I will say, I, I will return to like just picking on Wilmer. Like that is one of the fun things about the Maltese Falcon is that you know there are certain areas where you can definitely tell what the pecking order is, and mm-hmm. poor Wilmer is at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. Joel Cairo is kind of in the middle, and then Casper Gutman's kind of at the top. And then there's that weird trade-off of where does Mary Astor fit into this? Where does Humphrey Bogart fit into this? Mm-hmm. Where does his secretary fit into this? Um, and then where where does the cane that that, that uh, Joel Cairo fellates? Yeah, where does that fit into that? That's the weirdest. Yeah. Well, his character is was a homosexual in the That's story. That's the only remnant of it, really, other yeah. than the fact that he's kind of a fancy well, man. Well, he also has the perfumed handkerchief. Oh, right, right, no, the, the perfumed handkerchief. He That's has right. the permed hair. He is very effeminate in his walk, and <laughs> and he has the Effeminate, I guess, for a 40s film. <laughs> he doesn't read as effeminate now, his walk. Fair enough. 
But I think I, I think it's pretty well broadcast that we're sneaking by the censors that he yeah. is 1930s Hollywood version of homosexual. Yeah. Uh, but then, but then it's like, oh, we're also going to sneak this by the censors. He's just going to like fillet his cane yeah. absentmindedly for no yep. reason in the foreground. Which, I immediately thought of Josh Brolin and Inherent Vice. Yeah. <laughs> well, they actually Houston even makes fun of that and beat the devil because. Yeah. Uh, Peter Laurie plays kind of the same character, and he's always fondling his yep. cigarette hand, uh, holder. And then Robert Morley takes on the Sydney Greenstreet role in that. Uh-huh. Like, Beat the Devil is interesting because it's kind of like Houston parodying himself um, in Maltese Falcon. But yeah, yeah, I read that. I think in Ebert's Great Movies, I think he put that in his Great Movies article. Yeah, or it was just it's, a review. Well, it's in his Great Movies, but I mean, if you it. watch Beat the Devil, you can easily see where everyone lines up. Huh. Anyway, so I'm, you saw the war documentary Let There Be Light, which I, had, I didn't know that he did had a period of war documentaries. Well, everybody was like, oh, of course, you, you, you've seen it, obviously, because it was on the Master. Was it on the Master DVD? Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah, it was a bonus feature. I didn't know that at all. And I remember reading at the time that it was a huge influence for Paul Thomas Anderson to make the Master because he saw Let There Be Light. And it really is just all about post-traumatic stress disorder before they even had the term. Uh-huh. You know, like the original title of the movie is like the returning post neurotics. <laughs> yeah. Like they didn't really have a. They didn't even have the term shell shock. No, I don't think so. They I had shell did... shock. Did they, they use didn't it at that time? PTSD. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But it, it's you, there's a lot of really personal interviews with people coming back from war and explaining their experiences and breaking down and crying and it's it's a uh, it's so heart wrenching and, and I I cried a lot <laughs> watching I've it seen many... so you say it's a war documentary so was it like was it produced with the intent of the way that like the frank capra war documentaries were produced yes yeah so, I, I think so houston made three war documentaries it sounds like the opposite <laughs> like that yeah well, that's like the... that's the thing because yeah. um he made three war documentaries report from the aleutians battle of san pietro and let there be light and kind of as that progression goes on they were in varying degrees of censorship. So I think Report from the Aleutians was the only one that actually saw any sort of release. Battle of San Pedro wasn't released to the general public because it was too graphic, but it actually depicts real battles, and uh-huh. you see real people being killed. And I think they did show it exclusively for the army as, like, here's an idea of what combat actually looks like. And it's a really good film. I would recommend checking that out, too. Um, and then Let There Be Light was just... That was censored from the get-go, and I oh, think yeah. the only time that was ever actually shown to the public was like in the 1970s, and then released, I think, in 1981. Um, but that was just kind of deemed to be, this is, we're making more propaganda here, this is not even close to propaganda. It was made after, I think, World they War II. They also said they wanted to protect the identity of the yeah. soldiers interviewed and H- stuff. Houston does talk a little bit about that in his autobiography, and hmm. he says that was their reasoning, but he didn't really think that was the actual reason um sure and yeah they they don't show any of the actual names of the people but you just kind of come to identify with their faces and their stories and like you said jim like there's the one part where um the black guy with the glasses is breaking down talking about how much he misses his girl back home and like all these problems that he had um after war i mean it's it's really powerful and you can definitely tell that they're not staged. Like, you're getting real reactions here. And even though it's, you kind of step back and think, is the camera a little bit intrusive for this? Like, is some of this staged? 
there are moments in there where you can clearly see like the people who are stuttering or the guy who convinces himself that he can't walk. Yeah, and then he goes through hypnosis. Yeah. That's really something to see. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating, just one, because I think it really does carry a great emotional weight in just mm-hmm. identifying these people's stories. Even when you see them, like, maybe in two scenes or three scenes of the movie, because it's a bunch of different people that he's interviewing and going through, like, the day that they're dropped off at this hospital, what their first treatments are, or actually what their issues are, then what their treatments are and then how they progress. And it's only, like, about an hour long. Um, but there's, like, six, seven, eight people yeah. um, in that. Yeah, they're featured at length, and you get to see a lot of their recovery, too. So I, 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 think, I don't think I've ever seen a documentary from this era. I don't even have a good idea of how, what the format of this movie is. Is it, does it look like a newsreel, or is it a... It's much more personal than yeah. a newsreel. It's it's kind of like here's a day in like here's a day in the life of or here's like here's the treatment of somebody suffering from this condition. Yeah, there's like a voiceover sort yeah. of talking about what each person's going to go through or what they're experiencing and then you get to see it play out and then there's a I want to say, I think he was a psychiatrist, and he was just pretty much doing all sorts of different therapies and mm-hmm. uh, hypnosis and things. Um, you know, it's just it's just more like a again, it's sort of a static shot in one place, and seeing two people interact. I mean, there's also like a brief section of the Rorschach test that I immediately identify. Oh, that was in the master for like you know a couple mm-hmm. minutes or so. But um, yeah. So what? I'm sorry. Go on. Well, like, the hypnotism thing, I mean, that that's just fascinating to watch because, like, so many of the techniques you think now are so, like, so outdated, and yet you kind of see them working, at least in these contexts, yeah. or however it's presented. Um, I've heard some people have success with quitting smoking through hypnosis, but I don't I know. Hypnosis I've always hypnosis was a... Is, ho- is hypnosis a real science, Jim, or is that a pseudoscience? I think it's a pseudoscience. Yeah. 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 It, but it's people practice it. You can go to a hypnotherapist, right? Well, yeah. I, I guess I'm, I guess my point is like, I guess it doesn't matter how printed the techniques look, is if I think because it's, it's you have to bring yourself to allow yourself to be hypnotized. Yes, yeah, and it's more to, like a placebo. You gotta be susceptible. Yeah, so, not yeah. that I'm qualified to talk about. Sure, sure. No, but, I mean, it's I've just always been curious to, watch, to try it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, to watch just to see if I'm susceptible. Yeah, I, mean, I think you get, you get night paralysis sometimes, maybe even abducted. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm going to see that documentary like about sleep paralysis. I'm going to have nightmares for that. Lighter. Let, the, let there be light too. Jim's uh, Jim getting hypnotized and finding out that he uh, has been probed. And that's kind of another reason why Mysterious Skin affects me so much. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. just read that. I, re- yeah. I finished reading. I got to get yeah. that back to you. That's a really good book. It I is. See that movie now. Yeah. Um, at any rate. Uh, why did John Huston? Was this like a project that was sort of assigned to him, or was this a passion of his? Or he was assigned to it. Um, hmm. I'm not entirely sure on the the details because it's been a while since I've um, read <laughs> like the whole case of it. But he sure. was he was t- um, he was tapped by the army to do war documentaries, kind of like in the same vein as Frank Capra, yeah, um, <clears throat> and like a lot of other filmmakers at that time. And I think he had some degree of say in what he wanted to do, but I think there were still, like, he was still obligated to um, to make some films. Um, but I'm glad he did, because they really are, 
Like, all three of them are really, really interesting. But he was not a veteran. Um, I don't think he... I don't know if he actually fought. um, Because, I mean, he would have been young enough to, certainly. Um, But that was like... His career was just starting up in the thick of World War II. Yeah. Well, I mean... In Battle of San Pedro, like, again, that's actual combat. In Report from the Aleutians, he actually goes on a bombing raid, mm-hmm. and he films it. Yeah. Um, and you can see, like, moments, hmm. too, where, like, he loses control of the camera, and, like, the uh, the screen goes black, and you can see, like, the bombs hitting their targets, and it's just little flashes of light, but it's real stuff. I want to talk to you guys about the African Queen, because I want to know if I'm crazy. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't think that's a good movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> Why is like the African Queen? I hate Catherine Hepburn. I'll just say that right now. Oh, uh, no. I like Catherine Hepburn. Oh. Catherine, clearly the superior of the two Hepburns. Clearly. Clearly. I would not say that. Oh. Well, sounds like someone who hasn't seen Philadelphia Story. It sounds like someone who Bring hasn't seen baby. her on the Dick Cavett show where she's just being a major bitch. Well, that's right. You gave me that. Yeah. I gotta give that back now that yeah. <laughs> now that <you laughs> now I've seen you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think. Damn it, the African Queen. Has that been remade or like has that been ripped off in in a good movie? Because I think the structure of that movie is really appealing. I just think it actually. Yeah, it seems no familiar. part of it really works. Um, I mean, Bogart's good in it. Bogart's good in everything, but like Bogart's really good in it. But like the romance is super broad, and all of the like. All of the action scenes have to do with like rear projection and water being thrown at them. Like it's really have not aged well, and which is weird because they actually did shoot it in Africa. Yeah, but I mean, they obviously they couldn't actually yeah. shove the actors down like water rapids, so yeah. uh, they got the they got some of the good location shots, but a lot of it is not convincing. Um, yeah, it's it's just not as fun as as other movies. Either. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. It is as racist. <laughs> it is. Mm, that's that's the one thing, thing I'll say about watching uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, African Queen, and uh, the man who would be king. Well, especially actually, the man who would the man be king. Who would be king? Yeah, I think that's actually one of his more progressive ones. Are you kidding me? No. Why? I didn't, I didn't why? Because it. it's satire. Well, no, because it's it's criticizing how they're taking advantage of these people. Yeah, but they're hard, they're not depicted as people. They're still kind of just depicted as savage natives. Like there, there is no character that is like those people. They're that have a that's a fully formed character, except for like the subservient guy who's just like, well, I guess I'm doing whatever you're saying because white people showed up. Like it's not surprising to me. It's based off a Rudyard Kipling story, and that guy's not exactly very progressive. But like <laughs> all the like, well, no, it's attacking colonialism. I know it's attacking colonialism, but it's more like you shouldn't take advantage of these poor creatures. It's not like acting as if their culture was a valid thing before white people showed up. It's just, it's more about the hubris and the downfall of man. Uh, It's less about like, look at how awful they're being to these people. And it's more that, well, they just went too far. They wanted to, they weren't they weren't satisfied with being rich. They wanted to be gods. And then that was their downfall. Like, Oh man, I think the man would be king is super racist. I don't know. I see it more as just like they have a technological advantage, and that's really the only thing that separates them. Like they're just as nasty and shitty as any of the people that they're trying to subjugate. Like I maybe it's just a portrayal, and that they're. I don't know. I just I don't really see them that much as like mindless savages. I see them as like this group of people who 
have their own customs and I, that const- they constantly the humor comes from isn't it hilarious how primitive these people are like that's constantly where all the humor comes from mm. the humor like what's an example uh, like during the battle scene uh at, and when they're training for the battle and like all of that is just like you're so primitive you can't even stand with your feet like side by side you, you put his feet on top of each other like the, like, the constant humor is just, like, Sean Connery and Michael Caine being like, what am I going to do with these people? These, like, yeah, like... I don't know, I, I get most of the humor is coming from just from just the dynamic between uh, Michael Caine and Sean Connery. Like, they're just kind of being dicks to these people. I don't know if it's meant more as a joke. Like, even in that scene, it's just he's getting fed up and fed up because the guy won't do things the British way. Yeah, but... I mean, is that making fun of the guy, or is it making fun of Michael Caine for making, expecting no, everyone? It's making fun of the guy, because the guy, not knowing how to do things the British way, is he's literally putting his feet on top of each other. Like, he can't stand with his feet side by side. Like, there's a lot of stuff like that, where it's just like, well, look how wacky they're knocking heads around. Like, they, they decapitated someone, and they're playing a sport with their head. Like, Ooh. Well, Jim? I haven't seen it. <laughs> you didn't see it? No. It's it sucks. It's really the script is really good, and Michael Caine and Sean Connery are really good in it. Um, I hate, it is a lot of fun, but it's also like it was really hard for me to watch. I don't know. We, I guess we, I don't know. I guess I, we just disagree on that. But well, like, yeah, uh, we can agree at least that I, we both see it more as like an attack on colonialism. Yeah, no, it is an attack on colonialism, but it's yeah, it's but the way it actually proceeds is less like the reason it's attacking colonialism is about hubris, not about uh, <laughs> human rights violations. You know, and it's like, well, the problem with colonialism is you can't control these people because they're fucking savages. Like, that's that's sort of the message I get from that movie. Hmm. Huh. I don't know. I I don't know if they really play the savage mo- the savage card, like, as much. It's not, it's not like Literally, I mean, because bones make, through the nose, Italian cannibal movie savages. But but, but I mean, it, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like the dual thing because they're always making references to God and like the British Army. They're always dressing up in like the ornateness. Yeah, like I think that there is sort of a comparison between like all the ordeals that they go through and like all the things that they that they um, that they hold just being like British citizens that have parallels to. Like the Afghani's culture, or the what is it, Karish right? Or which is why culture. the drastically different depictions of the two races it's like stands out all the more to me. I don't know. It just like it uh, to me it, at least like highlights more of the similarities between them. Like where is really the dividing line here? Who is more savage? I mean, that's not as deep and penetrating an analysis, but I think that's that's more in tone with like what Houston's going for in that. Yeah. No, I I didn't see it. That's that fine. Way I mean. There's no, I mean, it's just, there is no Indian character, like, other than the guy who just, like, decides he's going to be their butler because white people showed up, like. Well, does it need to have an Indian character to not be racist? I think it needs to have an Indian character to depict them as having agency, as opposed to just being the sort of mindless, faceless mass of, that is just sort of the, like, they're just this mob, like, unruly mob. Hmm. I don't know. They, I, I don't see them really as being like. I, don't know. I, it's it's. 
I I just I don't know. I I just see them more as like just seeing like the parallels drawn out between them and that I think maybe they, the the problem might be I mean, the, the focus that the two characters are too charming. Well then they will be <laughs> that might be the problem is that there is the thing where they're doing horrible things, but it's always played for laughs in that movie. Hmm. Like, it's constantly played for, aren't they clever? These are the two smartest, wittiest people in the room at any given time, and they're doing horrible things, and, but their downfall doesn't come because they did horrible things. Their downfall comes because they weren't satisfied with being kings. They wanted to be a god. Or, the, or at least Sean Connery's downfall comes from that. And so to me, it's not criticizing them for the right reasons. Um, it's not criticizing colonialism because it's a horrific violation of human rights. It's criticizing colonialism because it's untenable. Okay, I can see that. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Sure. I, I just think that, again, like the focus is more on these two people, so naturally you're going to spend more time yeah. with them. But and I think, I think more could be... they have are like more at their expense. And But you yeah, also I'd... never see them like actually doing anything terrible to actually signify these are really bad people. Like, there's... Everything I, you see them doing, I mean... Yeah, but also, just to like, say, in, like they in don't, the battle scenes, though, like, they're just mowing down people left and right. Yeah, like, but you I mean, that's see a battle. That, but, yeah, but you see, like, up close, like, all the people that they're killing. Yeah, but... No, but that's, that's not the same thing. It's a battle scene. That's what happens in a battle. Everyone who showed up to that moment knows what the score was and what they were doing. Like, that's different than... Yeah, but you could also shoot that from, like, very far away instead of very up close. Like, I don't think it's shot particularly differently than you would shoot any other actions. It's like, I think it's shot for the excitement of it. I don't think... And later for the comedy of it, the way when Connery gets the arrow to the chest and everyone's, like, bowing to him. Like, well, even, like, in The Red Badge of Courage, I think Houston focuses more on, like, the Union Army when they're having a battle mm-hmm. there. And mm-hmm. it doesn't, he doesn't really go close up in, like, the Confederate soldiers who mm-hmm. are getting shot. And in this, I think he does go out of his way to show more of a close-up of, like, the people being killed. And that's the whole point, too, is that they have these particular rifles, which are, like, so advanced and which can kill so many people so quickly mm-hmm. that that's how they can become kings. I, I don't feel it does that well, though. Like, for, it also shows them being very chaste, which is, which is also just, like, kind of unbelievable. <laughs> Like, all right, all right, all right. You say we're just disagreeing. We're very civil. I know. Yeah, we we just just wanted to pretend. I I I just had to pretend I was the mediator. It's Kipling too, and yeah, I mean, it's it's like at a time where basically you every sort of portrayal of like India or Africa or Afghanistan is going to probably be pretty skewed from yeah, or at least from coming from a particular perspective. Um, You know, whatever. Whatever truth may be, like, in the customs, yeah, I think that it's fair to say that there is, like, you know, there's probably a portrayal there of them as being, like, a of an intelligence below what it actually I is. Think a, I think maybe some of the problem also is it being an adventure film, part of the appeal is the exoticism, and that is something that you could get away with more. In le- like, I saw The Bitter Tea of General Yen... Uh, recently, really, really good Frank Capra film, and that movie is all about like, look how look how strange and and lurid and exotic and and interesting this Asian culture is. The and Lost Horizon. 
Yeah, uh, I haven't seen Lost Horizon, but um, but like that sort of thing is part of the appeal because it is more than it is a character study of two terrible men. It is an adventure movie. It it's trying to get its entertainment value out of its entertainment value to some extent arise derives from that sort of thing, which is like imagine being a white man in this strange land having these adventures. Um, you know, like Indiana Jones, they make the villains the Nazis, and that like they sort of temper that a little bit. But like, but well, Temple of Doom, yeah, well, no, Temple and then Temple of Doom <laughs> takes it away the fuck the other way. We did yeah, a commentary yeah, yeah. track on Temple of the Doom, uh, but I think it is, I think it is the wrong genre and maybe the wrong approach to actually do a good criticism of racist colonialism, and I think. The way I just yeah I just feel like the way it depicts the people is like actually really uncomfortable and racist. Oh. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I, I mean, there are other John Huston movies we should talk about. But. Well, no, I just I guess I feel that he's not going out of his way to highlight racism or to like to really show them as savages. No, no, I don't think he's going out of his way. I don't think he was trying to show his disgust. But I mean, you. But to, I got the similar feeling. Like, I think it's just what the story is highlights it more than Treasure Sierra Madre. Even though Treasure Sierra Madre is still like, we're going to go into this land and plunder these people's mm-hmm. and plunder these people's resources. And if we lose all the resources, well, at least we can be gods and be subject and subjugate them and and have them treat us like kings in their little village. Like, there's still like an uncomfortable element of like, well, that's just what an adventure movie is where it's. You know the white man is the protagonist, and every and the the non-white man is not a problem. And like they're just they're just less than. And hmm. like Treasure Sierra Madre, it's mostly about the infighting between those three, so it's yeah. less uncomfortable. But yeah. there is still that element of it. It wasn't until like I, I was actually a little nervous with Fat City when the interracial couple showed up because I was just because they had that experience. Uh, and I think the opening of. African Queen is a similar thing where it's just like like isn't it hysterical that they're trying to bring civilization to these savages <laughs> like <laughs> whereas and like all the comedy derives from the tribes people running out of the church and fighting over a cigarette but like to me like that stuff is really uncomfortable and then Fat City is actually a really good version <laughs> like Fat City actually deals with an interracial relationship in a really cool way which is that they're all fucked up flawed people and the black guy is no more or no less yeah. fucked up than anyone else. Yeah. Actually that um two things. One, let there be light, um, you might like that too because there are a number of African American soldiers. That's really that. cool, yeah. And they and like mm-hmm. as we were talking about earlier, the one like most heartbreaking like scene in the movie is one of the African American troops like talking about how affected he was by war. And what's interesting too is that the hospital makes no distinction between them. They have yeah. like group yep. therapy uh, scenes where they're like doing group yeah, therapy. They're all and they're, together. And this yeah. in the forties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, like they go out of their way to like highlight them because there, there are two of them I think who are pretty prominent in the film, and they're like very articulate people. Yeah. That's really well. cool. Yeah, it's it's that's a thing. Like the the depictions of black soldiers in World War Two is just like that's just not really in film. Yeah, I mean, unless you have to make the movie about that, like yeah. that's really cool. I will say though, I think at the very end of it, where each one's getting like I think their decommission papers or something like that, 
The guy yeah. who's discharging him from the hospital shakes hands with every white guy, but he doesn't shake hands with a black guy. <laughs> well, well documenting mm, what happened. Um, yeah. But actually, uh, in, in another... He, I'm sure he didn't direct him not to shake no, hands with no, them. Exactly. None of it was staged. Yeah. Right. Um, but also, in the movie that Houston made after The Maltese Falcon, uh, called In This Our Life, which... It's a pretty interesting movie. It has its flaws, but Betty Davis is fantastic in it. Olivia de Havilland is fantastic mm. in it. Um, but that also has a uh, a black servant, and his whole character arc is he wants to become a lawyer. And a lot of it is kind of looking at how he's kind of crapped on by, uh-huh. um, like, Betty Davis is the bad sister, Olivia de Havilland is the good sister, and you know, they have partners who are both good and bad. And... Um, and the black guy kind of gets caught up in the middle because um, he's framed for like a murder that happens. I yeah, I think I I'm not trying to uh, disparage John Houston. I mean, no, he's no, no. De- I, probably de- definitely a product of his time. And that if we were to have, if I was to have a conversation with John Houston in the fifties, like John Houston from the fifties were to come here now, and I was to have a conversation with him about race, he'd probably say some fucked up shit. But like that's you know that's. Yeah. I'm not I, trying to disparage him in that way. I, th- okay. I think it might just be the trappings of the adventure, of the like the glow trotting adventure genre that that is just like that's what you do in those stories. Yeah, that like that's that just what sense. those stories are. I think I think that's fair. I guess I was more taking issue with like I don't think Houston was a racist and was pointing out the racism, and I don't think you were saying that. Yeah, um, correct. So, um. Treasure Sierra Madre? Treasure is really good. My second I, uh, favorite Humphrey Bogart performance. I'm ready to say it. Treasure Sierra Madre is my favorite movie of all time. Whoa. Really? Yeah. By far. Really? Yes. I like it way better than Paris, Texas. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And the apartment. You know the, yeah. And you know the moment that I sort of felt that way was is, like... Was this the first time you saw it? Second. Okay. I haven't seen it in a very long time. So Walter Houston dancing? Well, that's definitely <laughs> one part I love. <laughs> Is Walter Houston doing anything? You guys are all yeah. idiots. You're you don't what even you're stepping on. <laughs> um, actually, it's the, uh, the the scene where they all decide to become prospectors together, and they put their hands together, and you see Walter Houston's chin lying on top of their hands, and I just thought it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I know you mentioned like the clumsy transition. I didn't pick up on that. As I'd like you to elaborate oh, more. I you know, think <laughs> Bogart's transition. I think Bogart. So the one thing I like about Treasure of Sierra Madre is that there's a very heavy-handed monologue early on that I was afraid was going to set up everything about the movie, which is it's going to turn into oh, greed is going to destroy them. And like I said earlier, like it, it, the way it digresses is what makes it really good because it doesn't just turn into this really rote s- sort of tale of greed. Um, but so what I like about the movie is that it greed did not destroy them. Greed destroyed Bogart. Yes. Because mm-hmm. he was the – like the other two could handle it and the other two are good people and he mm-hmm. was just a person who couldn't handle it. Um, but – there, it's. I just felt like there needed to be a scene in between, something in between, um, him just being with everyone else and just being sort of one of the group, and him just being instantly the most suspicious, like 
angry, paranoid. paranoid, like so angry and paranoid. Like I think he does that role well. Like I think he plays both the downtrodden and the villain and the victim. Um, you know, and there's that moment early on where like they kick the shit out of the guy who didn't pay them, mm-hmm. and they only take exactly what they're owed and yeah. they just leave the rest. Like, like that's cool. But like then, so you see that he has that in him. Like he had an opportunity to take whatever he wanted, and he took what was owed him. But then instantly, the next scene after they find gold, he is just like, ah, no, what, what do you mean? I say we get our gold right now. Like, he's just so, like, and I just need, like, a scene, maybe of him eyeing someone weird, or just one suggestion before. And there's a couple, and then eventually he sort of... He goes back and forth. Yeah, he goes back and forth, and it's very abrupt. (laughs) And he changes. Again, I think he's really good at both parts, but... I think the changes are very abrupt and can be a little unconvincing. Hmm. That's, I mean, it's a small complaint. I don't, it doesn't sink the movie at all. It's one of my favorites. Um, Oh, good. But what, so it's, but it's interesting because I feel like other movies that are your favorite movies of all time are ones emotionally driven. Yeah. Like they speak more to how you, what you get out of movie. Like, the apartment. Well, like, I mean, it's your favorite movie. This of all is time. like I the or- this Paris, is, Texas. I get that. This is like the origin of like my some of my favorite kinds of movies, like great adventure stories mm-hmm. and something like a simple plan. I don't think a simple plan would exist without Treasure of Sierra. Well, mind. yeah, but you know, and it's you know, it's it's just. But Annie Hall wouldn't exist without the apartment. I mean, like, yeah, but eh, yeah, I right. like so. Yeah, I know. I'm just interested it just, by this because it's, it's it's so not what your favorite movies usually are like really personal choices and like really personal choices that really tie into your life and i just loved everything about it yeah i couldn't that's fair i just i just i felt felt the same way i saw casablanca uh on balance that's another one i probably could rewatch after many many years casablanca is loving it more i love every part of that movie yeah um i i just i love the idea of just like the irony of the ending and the fact that like those bandits didn't realize what they had, and it just you know trickles away. Yeah, I think that's really awesome. And there's a lot of quotable lines, and there's I don't know, like everything about it, the way the action is filmed, the, the that even fight just, even scene the, in the bar, yeah, so yeah, I know, weird and brutal, and, and no uh, score going on at yeah. the same time. I think that's really audacious for that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and the train shootout, the shootout with the bandits, like everything about this movie just works. Yeah, every performance is great. I think, yeah, the, it has two great characters in it with mm-hmm. Humphrey Bogart and Walter Houston. Yeah, and it just it anchors. I think it's weird because you're following Humphrey Bogart, and he ends up getting, you know, the worst of it, and he ends up being like the worst guy in it. So it's kind of weird that you have like an antihero movie, fairly early on, um, or like at least in 1948, mm-hmm. and then. Walter Houston, I think, is just amazing or fascinating to watch throughout this entire movie, too, because every single scene, you can just see him as, uh, shit, what was his character's name again? <laughs> um, old Man McGee. Old Man McGee. <laughs> old as Man old McGillicuddy. But, like, as you said... I should remember! Um, 
you mean you don't know the character names in your favorite oh, movie shut of all up. time? You must really like this movie, Jim. <laughs> Howard. 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 It's Howard. It's Howard, goddammit. Says the guy who never remembers any character names. In That's movies. true. But Howard, like, even in the Howard. scene where you're talking about where they agree to go find the gold, like, you can see him just still sizing the people, sizing... Um, yeah. He's... Tim he, Holton. His, his detached amusement um, is a really... Like... He could like that role with a little with less with less energy to it and with less invention. Like that role could be like this Obi Wan Kenobi kind of character. Yeah, that's just like this this constant voice of reason and and foretelling doom and like whereas he's just sort of like or Walter Brennan. (laughs) Walter Brennan, exactly. Yeah, Walter Brennan. Rio Bravo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Stumpy. Rio yeah. Bravo. Right, right. <laughs> or Gabby Hayes or whatever. But no, I'm just thinking about in, in terms of like the the function he serves in the plot. Mm-hmm. Like, I like that he kind of knows what's going to happen and just like, you know what? I'm this age and I'm here. I might not. I'm. You know, I've already made a piece with the fact that I might not get out of here. So you know what? All right, fine. <laughs> well, just in the way he like diffuses any sort of tension between them when he. Um, I think when they're talking about like who should be in charge of taking it to the assay office, and he says he's the most trustworthy, mm-hmm. and then he says, "Well, are you calling me a liar? You think I'm dishonest?" And he's like, "No, it's because you know I'm probably not going to live that long." And I, you know, he comes up with perfectly rational. But at the reasons. same time, he's not like they they come to group decisions that are hard as an audience member to like really get behind. Mm-hmm. Like you don't feel good when they all just turn to the guy and go, "Well, we all talked it over. We're going to kill you." Yeah. Like yeah. um like, you know, and he's not above that, you know, like he, he tries he to did, yeah, yeah, he votes against it, but he tries to keep But yeah. he isn't like, "Well, I warned you." He's just like, "Okay, well, I guess yeah. that's what we're doing now." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and I think even with that though, he like in that situation, they kind of know that the guy is he was telling him he wanted to get their gold. He knew what he was sort of in for. It doesn't justify it at all, but... <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it's like he's constantly trying to stave the inevitable off. And he does, like, an admirable job. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like, just where his eyes are constantly looking and how he's trying to handle Humphrey Bogart. It's like watching, I guess, an episode of Celebrity Apprentice where <laughs> you have, like, the crazy <laughs> guy. And it you calls to mind leader. other great works of cinema. Exactly. Uh-huh. Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah. Where, where Gary Busey... <laughs> I was thinking of Simple Plan. Guy who trailed here. us, you're fired. Kill him, Walter. <laughs> it reminded me of Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> oh, man, I like little details in that movie, too. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the guy's about to be executed, gets to grab his sombrero <laughs> beforehand, yeah. and then he gets shot, and then the sombrero... And the sombrero floats away on the wind. Oh, so good. That may be also the only time in cinema history that the photograph of the guy's girl back home or the story of his daughter or something like that actually works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Feels convincing and has some emotional resonance. Yeah, and... (laughs) And they pay it off, too. Yeah, they pay that off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I also, like, every time I see this movie, I always forget whether or not Tim Holt makes it out alive. Because I always think either Bogart kills him, and then that's the well, end yeah, of it. Well, yeah, he almost yeah. kills him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think Tim Holt's really good in this movie, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not... A showy white performance. Ha- it, it's not showy, and it's also not white hat goody yeah. two-shoes. Like, like, you know, evil he, he versus is, pure. He is a very convincing depiction of a good-hearted man who has been through some shit and 
is not afraid to get his hands dirty, but yeah. is still good at heart. Well, and he also, I think, kind of recognizes himself as being the greenhorn yeah. on this expedition, and so he sort of cedes to Howard mm-hmm. in every decision. Um, and plus, too, if you like, go back and watch. The well, night. not. I mean, but again, not when they're voting whether or not they should kill the guy. Yeah, you know, he doesn't go with Howard at that point. It's you know, it's. I mean, I like that about it. he is not just Howard's buddy. He is his own yeah. Yeah. man. Mm-hmm. He he is not above even uh, you know egging on Bogart when Bogart is mm-hmm. accusing him of. <laughs> accusing him of trying to steal yeah. his gold. He's like, go ahead, stick your hand in the hole, see what happens. Yeah. But he's like, a genuinely good person, too. I mean, he rescues right, Humpty but he's, Bogart. Yeah, but it's not like, here's our here's our clean-cut hero. Right. Like, yeah. I like that about That's what I love about the no movie. no clean-cut hero. Yes. Mm-hmm. 100% agree. Well, and, two, and it doesn't have the Wages of Fear ending. If <laughs> that, that helps. Yeah. And it's, it's totally different than um, Magnificent Amberson's. I, I have not seen that one. Okay, because he's the little upstart shit in okay. that. And it's a completely oh. different character. Um, I keep putting that movie off because I keep. Th- is, aren't they going to ever release the full version of? Yeah, it I do the same point? thing. I, I'm like I don't afraid of watching it. For that. What? I don't think they have the footage that's excised. Oh. From that. But okay. Yeah. Really just watch how it is then. Yeah. It's it's still a really good movie. I'm yeah, sure it is. But you know, you, you hold out hope. Yeah. Um, what are some other good John Huston movies? Fat City. Yes, I agree. That's my favorite. John <laughs> it's my Huston number two. Movie. Spoiler alert. That's my favorite John Huston movie, Fat City. Fat City. The ending of that destroys me. Okay, I want to ask you guys a question. I actually have one question about the ending of that. What is that freeze frame moment? What is he seeing? Is it... Is the thing, is the card game... What does the card game represent? Or does he see a character in the card... Like, what is that moment? I'm going to have to bow out of this one because it's been a long time since I saw it. Uh-oh. Okay. It's all on me. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about, though? I There's do. that scene where they're getting coffee, and then he turns around. I feel like it's symbolic of something. It's not literally Okay, happening. so there, it, I didn't miss something. It's not like he sees a no, character no, that no, was no. there before. No, Because there was also this weird thing. Like, that he has this realization of There's also kind? this weird thing that doesn't pay off where a guy gets off a bus, and it's this businessman in a suit, and he walks into a store, and there's a poster for the fight. Oh. And then after the fight, all the mm-hmm. characters are in the corridor, and they're all talking about the fight or whatever, and they eventually they all leave, and that character in the suit walks through the corridor and you never find out who that is yeah it's almost like the Halloween 4 or Halloween <laughs> 5 thing where like they're setting it up for Curse of Michael Myers or maybe some shit. but like you know like okay so I didn't miss anything no it's more I don't that's think what so. I thought too yeah um, god Stacy Keach in this movie is something unbelievable um, yeah Unbelievable! I don't think I really know Stacy Keach as an actor he, you was, might, in, have to he tell was in me. he was in Nebraska Drexel's Glass <laughs> oh my god! What else have I seen him in? I know he's he's got to be in so he's got to be in a he, John Carpenter movie. He's got to be. Well, he was also I think wasn't he recently in The Sin City too? No, I didn't see that. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna look this up. No, I'm gonna look this up too. But moving on to actually good Stacy Keach movies. Yeah, uh, not, yeah, not yeah, 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 yeah. I know I've seen like some wacky. Wacky supervillain in Nebraska. Like the worst part of that movie is when they turns into the "we're gonna get your money" plot that goes nowhere. Okay, he's in Brewster McCloud apparently, which I still haven't seen. <laughs> That's a good movie, but I don't remember him in it. He probably just plays a cop that gets pigeon shit on him. Um, okay. <laughs> oh yeah, he's in Escape from L.A. Okay. At any rate, Steve oh, American History X. Yeah, he plays like the head of the neo Nazis in American History X. He's really good in that. Okay. And I, I, don't, I don't think I know him from anything else. Okay. So this was a total surprise to me. He's 
unbelievable naturalistic performance. Yeah. It is like <laughs> I think I'm actually a big fan of Rocky. I like that movie quite a bit. But you and Rocky because it does feel like a new Hollywood movie because it's all shot on location and because Sylvester Stallone is just so fucking weird in that movie as the weird voice and like his romance with Adrian is just like there's no sexual tension between like it's so like you think of that movie as being actually kind of naturalistic and kind of and you see a movie like this and you're like oh my god like Rocky is the is the biggest Hollywood like crowd pleaser I mean obviously history bears out it was the big Hollywood crowd pleaser but like yeah. it really it's John G. G. Alvinson that's his thing oh man Fat City has the thing it had my favorite it had none of the things I hated from Joe but it had my favorite thing from Joe which is just people doing really menial labor oh, yeah. and shooting the shit yeah um, I love, I love all that. Of those characters. Yeah. I love that. Uh, God, the uh, the woman he ends up uh, living with. Oh yeah, I think she got nomination. yeah she got nominated for best yeah. supporting actress. She's, She's unbelievable. Really there's actually you know what character she reminded me of. She was basically the character in Key Largo. Did you see Key Largo? Yeah. She was the drunken Key Largo. Oh, <laughs> like, that's yeah, the same I, actress, could, but, like, I could see parallels there. <laughs> but like, and, and well, that yeah. reminds me is that is that that actress in Key Largo got nominated for best supporting actress <laughs> as well. But like, she is heartbreaking as just it's. There's no big speech she has really. Like she has her. She starts pontificating at the bar, and you hear it referenced that she had a hard life or whatever, which is why she is. But there's no big speech explaining what what happened to her. There's no thing where it's like I was a beauty star and then I was abused and blah blah you know like there's nothing like that. You just these are all broken people and it just makes you accept like even the most well off well meaning most kind hearted of them that gym coach is just like totally clueless. Like he like you know he is I mean maybe he isn't clueless maybe he's like just constantly talking up his fighters because that's what you need to do. But, like, he just comes across as kind of adult the way he's, you know, talking about Jeff Bridges' character who just mm-hmm. keeps losing and the way he's talking about... Well, I guess that bears out, so... Man, every character in that movie is so alone. <laughs> it's, it's, that is such a lonely movie. Uh, yeah. I felt lonely. I felt, like, their loneliness. I Again, it was just, like, regret, disappointment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just being incredibly flawed. Like, him... Again, regressing back to alcohol and like all these things that occur in the movie is like I've known people that have done that, or yeah. I've done that, or I felt that way. Um, and again, there's just something about a really simple, almost like the ending of Big Night, where two characters are just sitting together and there's not like any dialogue spoke. I mean, this is more at the very end, like the closing credits, practically. Yeah, yeah where it's they're just sitting, talk there. a while, and they say nothing. Yes, yeah, that's really something too. And, I and it's ambiguous, movie. like, is Jeff Bridges headed in that direction? Like, yeah. I mean, he's a fighter. Right. Fight, that could go any way. He could, he could become a great fighter and be very rich. He could be penniless and busted up. Like, mm-hmm. that's the, well, that to me is like, was the key tension when watching Fat City because their stories actually don't intersect that often. Right. But it's almost like one is a reflection of. Of the other, like one is what one had, and one yeah. is like what one. They like, mirror each become. other, and there's in just some ways. this weird crushing inevitability of of poverty, of like lower yeah. class. Like uh, Killer of Sheep is the same way. Hmm. Um, I need to see that. Well, not not quite the same way because 
but it is divided into adults and children, well, and the idea is about this cycle of yeah poverty. There's just like a cyclical nature to what happens. And yeah, I I identify with that to some extent, but to me, like I felt what Taxi Driver was for Martin Scorsese in terms of being a really personal movie about loneliness. This felt like John Houston's Taxi Driver, what, but in some ways, like because obviously he must have felt lonely at this well, at I mean, some he didn't point. Write it. He didn't write it at all. No, I'm surprised. It was, it was adapted. From I a figure, novel- like with the boxing well, angle too, the novelist uh, adapted it from it, hmm. from his own book. So okay, well, pretty much all of Houston's movies are adaptations. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he usually he has his hand writing the script. But he, he's I not, would think he's so. not even credited with story or anything. And yeah, in this, um, I mean, he and it's it's well made. Like it, like I said before, like it just looks good and it just tells the story well and it is unforgiving enough to you could think of it as a five easy pieces kind of John movie Cassavetes or, maybe yeah um, not I mean yeah, yeah it's I not mean, quite John overly dramatic yeah um, but it's really good yeah. it's amazing it has the sadness of a John Cassavetes yes, movie that's what I was trying to get if at. the approach is different yeah right mm-hmm. a couple I saw that I like was kind of eh on was Wise Blood and Winning was, is Winning the one with I you think Phobia no, oh, no. Um, it's with Stallone and uh, oh, oh, Max Victory. Fa- Victory. That's it. Victory. Where it was like the most anticlimactic. Like, okay, they're going to escape and they're going to play this soccer game and everything's going to go the way we plan. And it's just the most anticlimactic ending I've ever seen. Where it's like the crowd rushes when they win and they escape. <laughs> That's it. Like, they had this whole tunnel planned out. They even show these guys. And, no, eh, we're just going to run out after we win the game. So what is the plot of victory? It's just um, Nazis. Um, Michael Caine and Pele escape. Yes. The Nazis. The yeah. Great Escape <laughs> with Pele? Pele? Yeah, pretty much. Pele in The Great Escape? Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Yeah, pretty much. It's just, a, it, yeah, it's just another escape from, I love you know, Michael prison Caine. You know what I watched movie. recently? Sleuth, Sleuth, nice. Yeah, Sleuth is so Which good. Which one? Mm-hmm. The the original. Okay. I actually I put the remake on at work, and even though it, it has Harold Pinter's touch to it, its approach is way different. It feels way more like a play. I think it is a play. I don't remember. I don't know the exact chronology. Did Pinter write that? Pinter wrote the remake's screenplay. Oh, okay. What? Yeah, huh. and it is way more about psychosexual tension. Okay, and about them. Dominating, and it's not about like clever wordplay and like mm. twists and stuff. Sleuth is so good. Michael Caine is so good. Matt, he's so good in The Man Who Would Be King. Um, I feel like there was like one other movie I saw with him recently. I can't recall. Get Carter. I wish. Uh, anyway, Death Trap. Was he in Death Trap? He was yeah. in Death Trap. Okay. Right? Yeah, it's him and oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, Death Trap's really good. Uh, Michael Caine's really good. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, Victory is Michael Matt. Caine. Whatever. I mean, Stallone's what kind of... What is his work in the 80s like? Uh, why is Blood is just a weird sort of commentary on religion. I'd like to rewatch Wise Blood, though, because... Uh, Brad Dourif being Brad Dourif. Harry Dean Stanton, though. Which isn't a bad thing. Yeah. I don't mind that. I just didn't get what the thesis of the movie was, what the theme... Like, what the overall sentiment was. Yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't figure it out by the end. I was like, where are we with this character? Um, it was perplexing. Maybe and, it'll be a movie now that I know what I'm in for. Maybe I'll process it differently in a second viewing. But and it's based on the Flannery O'Connor novel, yes, and yeah. so there's like a lot of heavy Catholicism in there mm-hmm. that you kind of feel like, you know, maybe Kevin Smith would be able 
to help guide you through all the yeah. references that are being made. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wasn't a huge fan of that, but I would like to rewatch it. Yeah, um, Harry Dean Stanton's good as a blind preacher, mm-hmm. as usual. Did his work, like, just... Are there good 80s? Yeah. Movies? I oh, think yeah. Prizzy's Honor. Prizzy's I saw Honor, that a long time which, ago. Which uh, Angelica Houston won an Academy Award for. I love Under the Volcano. That's one I should have seen, yeah, because I like Albert Finney a lot. That's I think that's one of his best-looking movies, and hmm. Albert Finney, I think, plays the best drunk ever on screen. This is with, Ooh, like, Sterling okay. Hayden in The Long Goodbye, and... I guess you could say Jack Nicholson in The Shining, but Albert Finney is just, he's amazing in this movie. There's one shot where he has two people trying to dress him in a bathroom, and it's in an extremely confined case uh, space, and just the choreography of like how he's like wandering around while they're trying to put a shirt on him, and he's drinking like uh, shaving lotion or whatever the hell. Um, but that's, that's also based on a novel, um, and it's basically it's basically like a guy being really, really drunk and people trying to take care of him and just kind of watching like how how people who actually care about somebody who is so far beyond their control can like hurt them and okay. how he's like insanely self destructive. Um You know what drunk I like? I like Jimmy Stewart in Philadelphia story. <laughs> Remember that scene? Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart what keeps calling Cary Grant's character by his full name. Over and over and over again. It's really good. Have you seen Philadelphia Story? I have not seen Philadelphia Story yet. That's one of my favorites. I, I also put that on at work recently, and it's good. That's a good comedy you can just listen to because the dialogue is really, really fucking sharp. Yeah. What's your favorite on-screen drunk, Jim? You know, I think I had an answer for this at one point in my life. I think it might still be Mickey Rourke and Barfly. Yeah, it might be. But I feel like there was a more recent example where I was like, oh, that was a good drunk. Well, do you just think between favorite and best who or most this? convincing? You know, you know who are good drunks? We are. Elliot Gould. Oh! <laughs> okay, Elliot Gould in Long Goodbye. And, oh, no. No Elliot, no, Elliot Gould in uh, California Split. Elliot oh, yes. Gould and. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, George Siegel. George Siegel, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. Agreed. That's great. Great drunks. Yeah. You know what other John Houston movie I love? What? Speaking of Albert Finney, I think I'm gonna like it here. <laughs> oh, it's a hard knock life for oh. us. It's oh, Annie, yeah, Annie. the prequel to Annie Hall. That is a long fucking movie. <laughs> it is John a long Houston's movie. Annie. <laughs> I loved Houston's it as a kid. I love it. It's true. It. John Huston doesn't doesn't keep it brief. Tim Curry, Carol Burnett, God. I just loved that movie as a kid. Yeah. You know, I, just, I, I know it by heart at this point. Just one of those movies I couldn't stop watching over and over again when I was younger. I couldn't get over the depiction of Punjab. I don't like it. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I was going to say, I will definitely pick that one. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have not seen Annie. I have not seen that Annie in forever. I haven't either. And that's also where you're like retroactively, John Huston directed this yeah, movie? Yeah, exactly. I, I imagine at some point he just became a work for hire guy. Like it's possible. Um, how many of his movies uh, at that point were like successes where he was picking in? Like, I think Under the Volcano was a headliner at Cannes. Mm-hmm. Um, Annie, I have no idea how the hell he got into that. It's like Robert so did, you re- did you rewatch Annie for this movie? No. For the okay, so you can't tell. <clears throat> I just I would love part. to know if it's like how. 
how garish and flamboyant it is as a musical. Like, are not that Annie in general isn't. There's some is good a, choreography, a, if I recall. Not that Annie is a musical that has big numbers. Most of the numbers involve just like a handful of people. I remember the orphans when they sing "It's a Hard Knock Life." They're doing some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, running around the room and do, using mean. mops and getting all Jackie Chan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> running around. That's a drunk. That's a good on-screen drunk. Jackie Chan, <laughs> drunken master, drunken master. Yeah. Um, but like Prizzy's Honor, I think was his own project, and then his last one, The Dead. Um, I think it's definitely his own project because yeah. nobody okay. would ever. And that's definitely what we're seeing. If you want to see like. White people eloquently regretting stuff. Sure, um, <laughs> I'm always up for that. <laughs> like, like Fat City is my favorite John Huston movie. There you go. Um, it's a, it's a really good adaptation. Uh, th- to be fair, the white people in, in Fat City are not too eloquent, <laughs> but they're full of regret. Yes. Well, this is this is James Joyce, and okay. it's it's a really good adaptation of Joyce. Angelica Houston is absolutely heartbreaking um, in this. I think this is definitely up there for his most personal films. Um, probably because he knew he was just about to die. Um, and it's also his daughter kind of taking the main part. Um, but it's it's powerful. Oh, Angelica Houston. Jo- yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. And Prizzy's Honor is fun. Yeah. So. The ending of The Misfits made me a little melancholy, just because was it Marilyn Monroe's mis- last movie, the Clark the Gable's a, movie. A, a Western? That's kind what of? I thought. It starts it's, off in Vegas. It's like a oh. Western? Kind of. Oh, okay. Kind of. There were a couple of westerns he made, and they were too long, so I didn't watch yeah. them. That one's worth seeing. There's some good, good stuff in Misfits, it. Misfits, I should say. Yeah. Misfits, like another, like a lot of John Huston movies, it's really good performances. Yeah. And the story can get kind of long, mm-hmm. but there's some good stuff there. Like if you want to see horses getting abused, yeah, I love I, you. You just said the magic words. It's <laughs> my favorite thing. Montgomery Cliff getting abused. My yeah. horses. John Huston didn't happen to drag Milo and Otis, did he? He well done could have. <laughs> you guys know that story, right? How many Were dogs they went through for? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was just like a killing field. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking animals mm. for Milo and Otis. Okay, cool. So I gotta find his Freud movie. Apparently, what's his Freud? Oh, it's he made a movie Freud about Freud. Fashion? Yeah. yeah, I need to find that, that one. I haven't seen. Um, while you're doing that, I can talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, I don't think he's finding his Freud movie. No, no, I'm not. I'm just saying that I wish I could find it. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. I haven't watched. There's it more yet. John Huston. Went, I think we've exhausted. I'm gonna. You talk about something. I'm gonna double check. See if there's any other John Huston movies I saw. Night okay. of the Iguana. Night of the Iguana. Night of the Iguana. Oh, I saw Night of the Iguana. I didn't like Night of the Iguana. It was okay. I didn't of the Iguana either. It was okay. A lot of wheel spinning. It was okay. That hotel. But that glass scene, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Richard. Okay, Richard. now you're making fun of me. No, I'm not. <laughs> I feel in the same way. You're like making eye contact with me syncing up your yeah, 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 yeah to my yeah, 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 yeah. It's because I love both Richard love Burton, the song maps. But, uh, oof, yeah, it's like. I love the opening scene. Yeah, no, no, no. I like the, the first church. 15 minutes of Night of the Iguana, and then it just promptly goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Once they get to the hotel, it goes nowhere. Yeah. Right. Okay, so I guess that's more like 20 minutes. Yeah. Fair enough. I but, wasn't uh, bored, but I was disappointed by the end. I was like, oh, it really didn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's Which Tennessee. is a shame, because I, I, I do like Tennessee Williams, and I love Richard Burton. And, you know, that John Houston guy, he's pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Um... Any others? Uh, I 
Some other ones you might like. Um, Moulin Rouge, the original. Oh. Oh, if you want okay. to talk about awesome opening scenes, that definitely is up there. I remember not liking Moulin Rouge. I saw it a long time ago. I have seen this movie, though. Okay. And I remember it just thinking, like, it's everything that's boring about modern biopics, but it's also... Um, but then it's uh, exacerbated by the fact that it is like the style of a 50s movie I don't know that's not a very educated thing I take back I don't have anything to say about Moulin Rouge I found it boring when I was 20 <laughs> sure enough I think, I think you might like the opening scene yeah. and I, I do like just kind of the idea of Jose Ferrer or Tallulah Trek kind of like getting really pissed at himself and just the whole idea of somebody creating a facade and then art actually having depth um, there's like the scene in there where he Somebody chides, or he chides somebody, or somebody chides him for admiring the Mona Lisa and saying the only reason you like that is because Da Vinci, you have the Da Vinci plaque there. Uh And that's like one of the big themes of the movie. Um, But that's also like a good one, just kind of on personal loss and inferiority and. Oh, um, those are two of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh my this god. Is, this is Jim Nip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can try to think of some Pat Nip for. But Personal loss and inferiority. My God, <laughs> uh, Key Largo. Yeah, Key Largo yeah. Yeah. is very tense. It's very good. I love it a, when people are point. trapped somewhere. To a point, yeah, it's, it's another thing good. I love. Yeah. Uh, I I think Bogart's character in it is kind of lame. <laughs> like it's that it's that thing. It has that arc that a lot of thrillers had at the time, uh, where it was just like this pro. Um, Inter, what is the word? Interventionist, like uh. sort of a thing where it's like you can't stand by, you mm-hmm. must do something, and you know the Bogart's yeah. going to do something, and you're just like waiting and waiting. Well, it's also we have Casablanca, which is a much yeah, like movie about yeah, that. exactly. Like Casablanca was a movie made during World War Two, so yeah. it was actually relevant. Yep. Like this is about prohibition, which was long gone, and this was about. World War or World War Two, which is also long gone by yeah. times, and FDR, who's long gone. Yeah, yeah, and so like, there's a lot of wheel spinning in Key Largo as well, but a lot of that involves Edward G. Robinson, who is yes, it's fucking slimy yeah. as ever, just chewing scenery. And there's that amazing yeah. shot right before the him and his and his party sort of take everyone hostage. Where they they see the storm coming and they're shutting the shutters and the camera is just rotating around the room and as she's shutting the shutters on the inside and he is on the outside closing at, closing off the outside world Edward G Robinson and his people are all looking at each other it's really really beautifully staged mm-hmm. moment yeah uh, I'd definitely say Key Largo is worth seeing even if uh, it's a little disappointing it's pretty good yeah it's pretty good yeah. yeah. I think we can give our top three John Huston movies at this point, fellas. Sure. Okie doke. Um, I'll go first. Uh, oh, cool. My number one would be Fat City. My number two uh, would be Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And then my number three would be Maltese Falcon. That's a good list. Yeah, it's a good three. I, I need to clear this up. Do we start at number one or do we start at number three? You because different episodes, way. it's... You know what? I've listened to the some... The tension that we're raising by starting at number three lasts eight seconds. Except, so. except, <laughs> actually, in Jim's case, since he already said that uh, yeah. Treasure Sierra Madre yeah. is his favorite film, there's not going to be any suspense if you do a count up. That's true. You should count down. Everyone wants to know what your number three film is. Everyone wants to know 
Did, if uh, they Maltese, know me, did it's... Maltese Falcon make the cut? It's number four. Oh! oh. Okay, so your number one is Treasure of the Sierra Madre. What's your number two? Wait, wait, wait. Should we try to guess this? Oh, yeah, we should try to guess this. Number two, definitely... I'm going to say Let There Be Light. Close. Treasure Sierra I said Madre. it, actually, when we were talking about it. I said that was my number two. Oh, Fat City. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, and then number three is Let There Be Light. Yes. Uh, and then Treasure of the Sierra Madre is number one. Yes. I actually, when you were like, all right, let's figure out number two, I yeah. said Treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> I'm an idiot. It's with a memory of a goldfish. All the way down. <laughs> hey, look at that castle. New yeah. castle. It's a yeah. castle. And number four would be Maltese Falcon, and number five would be Annie. You should see Mano, <laughs> you should see Mano would be king, despite, despite my feelings towards it. Um, I think I will. It actually is a really fun adventure it's movie. It's a very and fun adventure Sean movie. Sean Connery and Michael Caine, I'm amazed that they didn't team up that much. Why didn't that become the thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'd also, I think the other thing actually about Mano would be king that put me off a little more is that it's like it's a movie that came out years and years and years after Lawrence of Arabia and it kind of has that same it's not an epic like Lawrence of Arabia it's only like two hours long but um, hmm. but like Lawrence of Arabia is also a movie about like white people involved <laughs> where they should be involved but it's like a way more critical version of it where like that's what it is about and like so in my head just the way you know Man It Would Be King opens and everything I was thinking about that and I'm like alright this is really and then Oh, no. No, it's okay. That's fine. It's a throwback. It's a throwback to a different time. Um, you should see Man Would Be King. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Uh, the banter. God. What did, Sean, did Sean Connery do other movies like that in, bet- in between Bond movies and, and uh, I guess, whatever he did in the 90s? Like, what was Sean Connery's career in the 70s like? Well, there's Zardoz. Um, oh... Actually, there is a pretty decent movie um, written by John Milius, and John Huston actually appears in it, uh, called The Wind and the Lion. Uh-huh. Um, although Sean Connery plays, like, a Middle Eastern emir, but... Sure. Um, it's about... It's actually based on a true story, and he captures this woman played by Candace Bergen, and there's a bunch of international tensions. Um, is it modern day, or is it... No, it's like uh, turn of the century, like okay. 1900s. Okay. Um, but it's actually, it's a pretty decent flick. And John Houston is Secretary of State, I think, John Hayes at the time. And uh, Brian Keith is Teddy Roosevelt. Um, but it's, fun. yeah. You know, Bully! you know what else I started watching at work, and I realized I couldn't follow it, so I'm saving it? But Sean Connery's in it. Murder on the Orient Express. I do like that movie. I don't think I've seen it. Sidney Lewis? I don't think so. Albert Finney. What's wrong Albert with Finney? Albert Finney. Uh, actually, everybody's in that. Yeah, everybody's in it. Wendy <laughs> Hiller's in that. Jean-Pierre Cassell. Uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman's in that. Michael York. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Um, Martin Balsam. Yeah. Nat, what are your top three John Huston movies we never got to you? Uh, number one, obviously, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, <laughs> it's easier to go by, like, decade. Um, I don't know, number two, probably, like, a tie between Under the Volcano and... Uh, I'm just going to say Under the Volcano and the Dead. And then <laughs> number three... Judge Roy Bean and uh, List of Adrian Messenger. Oh. Which I didn't have a chance to talk about, but... Maybe next time yeah. for part two. Or Asphalt Jungle, for that matter. But 
Yeah. I saw Jungle Jesus. There was one I really, really, really wanted to see, and I didn't. That yeah. one, that one, definitely check out if you oh. want to see how the heist I movie, the heist genre came about. That's a movie to I check out. I wanted to see that too. Yeah, I mean okay, the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, all right. There's like Moby no. Dick. There's the Bible. There's <laughs> the Bible. Yeah. Oh my God, I got to get to that too sometime. The Bible, a John Houston it. joint. I'll get to it. Yeah. John, John Houston presents the Bible. <laughs> in the beginning Matt thank you for being on the show yeah My you were pleasure. great thanks for having me where can people find your work you can find me at wherethelongtailends.com under still watching the skies with the delectable Robert Reinecke and the amazing Cody Lang that's kind of a weird description for Robert but um, I, it, 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 it fits okay fair enough and His enthusiasm is intoxicating <laughs> And uh, still occasionally do reviews for Frothy Girls, F-R-O-T-H-Y-Z-G, or no, fuck it. Just type in Nat Almirall and N-A-T-A-L-M-I-R. <laughs> God, can I do anything without having a spell crap? Um, but yeah, Still Watching the Skies is the most consistent stuff. We do a podcast uh, generally about two a month. And yeah. So you can what just- is your best? What's the best episode of that? Best episode of that? Yeah. Uh, probably the one we just recorded with, uh, I think it's uh, Mark Hughes on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. All right. Well, Damn I'll good check movie. that out. Um, I want to say once again, uh, please support Most Likely on Kickstarter. I, I'm just going to lay it out there. Mm-hmm. You donate 10 bucks, I'll watch any movie you tell me to, <gasps> as long as it's not like horrific. Oh, no. Don't, tell Brian, don't tell Brian Pite. Why? <laughs> Because he always needs oh, yeah, to watch yeah, yeah, something. Yeah. I, Brian, you, 10 bucks, I'll watch any movie you tell me to, and I'll oh, review it, at least three God. paragraphs. Uh, you donate 50 bucks, I'll do a bonus episode on, on something you want me to. Jesus, 50 bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On demand, my friend. I want, I want, I want this movie made. So, uh, hmm. most likely Kickstarter. What if I give you 50 bucks? You give me 50 bucks, I'll do a bonus episode on a Wilco concert film. No, I wouldn't make you do that. <laughs> I just want you to see Some Kind of Wonderful. I'll th- what's Some Kind of Wonderful? It's really good. It's probably pretty good. It's good. For a John Hughes movie. You can Google my name, James Laskowski. Or you can find me at Letterboxd at Instant Gym. Or Twitter at Instant Gym. It's uh- true. I'm at Patrick Rapole on Twitter. I'm at Patrick Rapole on Letterboxd. I uh, have Patrick's new album dot WordPress dot com is my uh, album development blog. If you want to see the super slow progress I'm making on that, um, you can email us Directors Club Podcast at gmail dot com. That would be sweet. You can find us on Twitter at DC Podcast. You can find us our website, which is Directors Club Podcast dot com. Um, you can review and rate us on iTunes. It is literally the only way people find our show. You, you, it's, it's stupid. I'm, I'll just say we're <laughs> flat out. Like, the way Apple has designed iTunes is the dumbest. If we, if we don't get new reviews, then no one's gonna check out our show. So you don't have to bother your friends and tell them to listen. You can just write a review, and uh, that'll help us out a lot. I would love that. Patrick, I'm sad to say... That I will not be joining you for the next episode because no, I'm episode. taking a taking a vacation break. Uh, got a lot going on. You're moving Working. back to Michigan. No, I'm not. That would be the worst thing ever. Um, hey, 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 no, I like Michigan. I really like. I like living in Grand Rapids. Just oh, we not, forgot to say it follows takes place in Michigan. Oh yeah, I know. Did, that, it was that. It was something did that like add to it for you. I was like going, hmm. I know this. Yeah, know it this. feels super midwestern at any rate. Yeah, it's definitely like midwestern suburbs. 
God, I just like recognized everything in that movie as being something from my past. Yeah, almost. Yeah. Except for the Kindle thing. Except for the, except for the, <laughs> uh, the the Little Mermaid themed uh, yeah. Kindle. So, Patrick, you and yeah. Regina are going to be doing an episode together. Yeah, on Lucas Moodyson. Who I like I'm, very much. I'm excited because I only know we are the best. Yeah. I'm a so, huge fan of fucking a mall, a.k.a. Show Me Love. Yeah, I'm going to be checking out that. Leela Forever. Yeah. A um, couple other that. ones. Yeah. Um, that'll be interesting. It will be. I'm excited to hear you guys. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. It'll be so. Fun. Why are you panicking? It'll be fine. I'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. Um... Oh, and uh, be sure to support Night Beast. Go to <laughs> nightbeast.org to mm-hmm. find out how you can help Night Beast. And fuck Bill Perkins. And <laughs> Bill Perkins, that bastard. He, his kid dies and he can't fire a shot. We watched part of Night Beast before we started recording the <laughs> podcast. That movie's ridiculous. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank and, you. Uh, I love you, Jim. I love you, Patrick. I Goodbye. You. Goodbye. Yesterday is dead and gone And tomorrow's out of sight And it's bad to be alone Help me make it through the night Come on, do the podcast (laughs) Fucking California can't do impressions. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. No, that's not it. One more time. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Patrick Rapol. Hello, everybody, and I am Jim Lad. No, no. <laughs> Why are you Greek? <laughs> you killed my momentum. Oh, I'm sorry. I did one, two, three, four, and then started with a solid eight count of drumming, and then you, and then you went one, two, three, four, and started playing I guitar. Went too fast. Hello, Hello everybody. everybody. Welcome to the direct. <laughs> Oh, this is going to be a good one. I can already tell.